Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody disgusting network. Coming up next is something indescribable, tantalizing, and mind-numbing. Enjoy. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. I'm your host, Michael Rose Red Rothman, and look, I'm just going to break the ice and cut right to the chase. Today, we're channeling our thoughts on David Cronenberg's 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's 1979 novel, The Dead Zone. Why, you ask? Didn't we already cover this all the way back in 2017 in our first season with our first book episode? Well, yes, we did. In fact, uh, it's one of my favorite episodes, and you can scroll back in our feed and find it right now. But here's the thing. We only casually dipped our feet into the film's icy waters, and that's just how we did things in the beginning. But as many of you know by now, we're going back to the old films we didn't dig deep on with our exciting new Long Watch series. Over the past year, we've revisited Rob Reiner's Stand By Me, Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption, Brian De Palma's Carrie, and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Now... It's Cronenberg's turn. And good Lord, do we have a lot to unpack, which is why I'm very elated. I have three very sharp psychics with me to tackle what I consider to be, spoiler alert, uh, one of the best Stephen King adaptations puts a celluloid. But uh, I'll let that be a tease for what's to come, and I'll turn the floor over to my colleagues. Randall, say hello, share your connections with the Dead Zone, including the novel, and whether or not Cronenberg is in your Q zone. <laughs> hey, Rockin' Randall here. And uh, yeah, uh, Dead Zone was one of the first Kings I ever read. It was, you know, I told this story in the pod, but, you know, my first Kings, I, I uh, was gifted by my grandma who had them in her basement. And I used to always flip through and find the gory parts. Not a ton in the Dead Zone. Uh, so I remember it was my least one I was least interested in of the collection she had. But I love the book. Uh, this was my third time seeing the movie. And every time I see it, I love it a little bit more. Um and I'm very excited to talk about it. As for Cronenberg, uh, he's always been somebody I've I've it's a bit of a blind spot. I haven't seen some of the classics. But and so just I will say just yesterday, I watched The Fly for the first time. Wait, the first uh, time. Wow. Yeah, I've been it was texting a- about it nonstop <laughs> because it's my favorite horror movie. Yeah, I'm so excited for Randall. Like uh. I'd seen like History of Violence. I'd seen Maps to the Stars. I'd oh seen like God. The Brood. I'd seen a bunch of them, but I'd never seen The Fly. And uh, man, fucking loved it but obviously that's for another discussion uh so yeah i'm i'd say cronenberg is very much in my q zone right now i want to fill in my gaps and uh that i still have which include rabbit existence existence uh existence. crash and and uh the one with jeremy irons dead um, ringers dead, dead ringers, ringers. i've not seen those so okay. those are on my radar yeah uh exciting well hopefully i can uh stroll and mosey on down the street and watch uh at least dead ringers with you that'd be great yeah um and maybe we could watch crash together uh from hands <laughs> might be a little uh, well, you've heard it before. Mel, I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts because uh, you joined the club after we covered the book, I believe a month mm-hmm. later, uh, and you only just saw this film uh, a week ago. So I'm, I'm very brief thoughts on the film real quick. And then tell us if you, too, are a Cronin head. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have used the term Cronin bitch on first dates before. <laughs> like, that's how much of a Cronin head I am. Um, although, like Randall, I, ha- I haven't done a full 
exploration of the entire catalog, which is a little bit embarrassing. Um, but you know what? Today is not a day to be embarrassed about not having seen or read things because this was the first time I'd ever seen this movie. And I was very enamored with it. Um, Dead Zone, I've read. It was a late Stephen King book for me. I was gifted a copy by my ex's parents from like the bookshelf that nobody goes to in their like old childhood house. Um, and it's such a different Stephen King book. It like in my mind, it's this political thriller almost. Um, so it was not one that made an incredibly deep dent in my brain. Uh, but I will say this movie did. Like I, I thought this was really, really stellar. I can't wait to to get into it. Well, I'm glad you were here to talk to us uh, about it and also chip through some of the ice because uh, let's just say I can't do it myself. Uh, <laughs> but look, uh, three is lucky, right? Before is a true catat, and uh, we have a we have a special guest uh, finally. This because uh, it wouldn't be a proper long watch without a star in the clubhouse. And we certainly have one. Uh, she's a critic and a novelist with a penchant for sexual revulsion, body horror, and the ways violence squeezes into our lives. In March, she published her first debut novel, first, well, her debut novel, Manhunt. Uh, Gretchen, welcome to the Losers Club. Please say hello and tell us your connections to King, to Cronenberg, and naturally to the Dead Zone. Gerald's gaming Gretchen here. Very <laughs> oh, nice. to be included. <laughs> Nice. I nice. think that's the only Stephen King story that starts with a G. I don't particularly <laughs> like it, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I read The Dead Zone probably 20 years ago when I was 12, and I've read it a few times since. I love it. I think it really is atypical for a King book, um, mm -hmm. but it also encompasses a lot of themes that are common in his work, where you find this man who is victimized by circumstance and denied like the traditional trappings of manhood separated from a family that he should have had by tragedy and so he's left free to address injustices in the world at the cost of his own life and welfare um you know you see this a lot in king's work i'm thinking of like duma key and stuff mm. a lot of his later books he's he's very sentimental about family um, oh, totally. Totally. And I am a longtime lover of Cronenberg. I think I first saw Videodrome in 99 or 2000. I was way too young to be watching Videodrome. <laughs> um, I saw it late at night on TV and I was just completely blown away. Like, what do you mean this man is growing a vagina in his stomach? I will never be the same. <laughs> um Typically, whenever anyone asks me about David Cronenberg, I say, oh, yes, my biological father, David Cronenberg. <laughs> um, and I love his adaptation of The Dead Zone. I think it's simultaneously really faithful and conveys his, like, unique grasp on how to shoot practical effects. Mm -hmm. And also, Christopher Walken is such a good choice for this role. Yeah. Because he plays perfectly as, like, and every man who is far too weird for the world around him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I really want to talk about his performance. I think it's absolutely incredible. Um, Gretchen, uh, having just read Manhunt, I feel like I can see some King DNA influence in there. For sure. How would you sort of characterize that? I'm very proud to be like a student of Stephen King. You know, he's the the New England author for our, for our century and the last one, as, as far as I'm concerned. And... 
I love his work. I grew up with it. It shaped my relationship with horror and my relationship with all sorts of things for good and for bad. Yeah. I, uh, I'm incredibly thrilled to be compared to him as, as I have been. It's a real honor for me. Yeah. One of the things I noticed that you do in Manhunt that he does in his work really well is developing character through pain. Uh, like the idea of being in actual pain and the process of processing that pain uh, often leads to, I think, some of the greater character revelations in King's work. Uh I, I've I've pointed this out on a bunch of our book episodes. When I was reading Manhunt, I'm like, the way these characters grapple with the various wounds that they endure throughout this, uh, I feel like I that's when I learned so much about them. And I was, and that just reminded me that was one thing of many things I think that just uh, I could see sort of that Stephen King influence. But yeah, Manhunt rules. Uh, highly recommended. Thank Check you so out. much. Yeah, yeah, no one no one sketches a character like King. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, looks like we're in great company. The uh, fan of Cronenberg and uh, Scholar King. So how about that? Uh, I, real quick though, before we go forward in the dead zone, you know, this is um, an oddly timely uh, revisit. Which you know, going into this episode of you know a month ago, because look at the Losers Club, we set ourselves uh, pretty high uh, for you know the caliber of work that we're putting out there, and so we do a little research ahead of time. And I will say, in the beginning, I was kind of like, "What the hell are we revisiting this movie?" There's not an anniversary tied to it, uh, but Cronenberg has a new movie out, and uh, it's said to be his swan song uh, for the most part. I hope that's not the case, but you know, if it is, uh, and based on what we're hearing from this movie, I'm excited. Crimes of the Future. Uh, real quick, before we get too much on a tangent. What's our hype level? One to 10. Uh, 10 being, I can't fucking wait. I'm losing sleep. One being like, meh, I'll stick and watch Crash. Uh, <laughs> Gretchen, one to 10, where are you at with this one? Solid 10. Yeah. I'm, I've been waiting for my boy to go back to body horror for years. Ditto. Ditto. Mel, you. Yeah, for real. 10. I, I Having grown up on Videodrome, Dead Ringers, The Fly, seeing things like History of Violence was like very jarring and good but i was kind of like well but nobody got no, no parts were falling off of yeah exactly right <laughs> i love his crime movies i think they're really revolutionary and intelligent and dig into a lot of very cool stuff but there's no goop yeah <laughs> give me the ooze Bring i want back the goop the ooze. mama yeah. wants her goops <laughs> I like it. Uh, Randall, one to 10. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm 10, baby. Especially, I think it's specifically because I watched The Fly yesterday and I'm 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 in Cronin mode, I guess. Like it's, uh, but it's funny because yeah, my first Cronenberg was, was History of Violence. So I didn't really know the darker, I mean, not the darker, the goopier side of Cronenberg until over the last several years. Like it was just always kind of a huge blind spot for me. And um, so I think now that I'm, I'm venturing into those, uh, uh, you know, viscous waters, I'm very excited to do so with, with uh, crimes yeah yeah same i mean i'm at a 10 i'm a huge fan of david cronenberg um i haven't seen everything like mac uh mac gerber fellow loser who is uh, also a scholar of cronenberg um you know i i actually came into this movie uh in high school um when i was kind of going through some of the more um you know the the highlighted works of his especially like video drum a huge fan of video drum i also you know, politics aside, I think James Woods is a really great actor. <laughs> so yeah. um, I just I just love like his performance in that movie. Um, always makes you want to have a cigarette. But um, that's also tied to his other performance in the Stephen King Quitters Inc. But 
I yeah, so I'm I'm really Jones in for this one, and I I just love the idea that there's gonna be a lot of transformations in this because um yeah he needs to get I wanted him to go back to some of the the, the more gnarly stuff that but sticking to Vigo like it's taking Vigo into the other yes facet. right oh I was gonna oh, say percent yeah like I know so little about it because I I try to avoid trailers if I can like I I'll watch them if I'm at the movies but uh so I haven't seen the trailer I saw like one or two images online but I didn't look close at them and so I didn't even know who's in it so Vigo's back. Yeah. He's, oh, Vigo's he's back. Baby. Nasty. Okay. Oh, yeah. Cool. I'm excited yeah. about that. I mean, it's. I don't know if we're gonna have a you know steamy you know scene like he does in Needs and Promises where uh, <laughs> it, you know he almost gets his balls, uh, stabbed by knives and stuff. It's like the most like uncomfortable scene, but it's it's great at the same time. Uh, but I'm very excited for this one. I believe it premieres at Cannes, um, and then I think it drops on the 10th, the June 10th or something. But uh, anyway, right around the corner. And what better time for us to go back and revisit some of his hits? Uh, and I would say The Dead Zone is certainly one of them. Um, but look, constant listeners, you are uh, you, you're you're being uh, hosted by a, a bunch of Cronin heads. I'm just going to keep calling them Cronin heads, um, Cronin bitches, Cronin heads, whatever you want to call them. We got them on this cast, and so I think we should pool our psychic abilities and start peeling the countless layers to the Dead Zone. And what better place to start than the history of the production, which uh, we'll unpack at. The Wysak Clinic. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can... I can change it. You can change it, exactly. All right, at the Wysak Clinic, we are going to give a little rundown on the production history, talk about the, the crew, save the cast for a little later. Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep things... Uh, I'll, I'll try to lean on the brevity, but... As we do, we go long on this part of the, the pod. All right. So as we mentioned, directed by David Cronenberg, screenplay by Jeffrey Bohm, cinematography by Mark Irwin, music by the great Michael Kamen, which is uh, important to note because this is uh, the only film since The Brood, in which Howard Shore wasn't the composer, uh, was released date. Uh, the release date for it was October 21st, 1983. Oh, and, Halloween uh, movie. I know, it's a real Halloween movie. And if you recall, The Dead Zone is a Halloween novel because it starts off with uh, him getting a, 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 a spooky mask to scare Sarah. <laughs> That's right. yeah. um, but uh, so fun fact, this was the second of three adaptations that year. Can anyone without looking guess what the other two were that year? Feature other, films? Of uh, Stephen King, yeah. And they were adaptations? They're adaptations, yeah. I was gonna say creep show, but is that's not. No, nah, it's eighty two. No. Yeah, it's a C. They're both C names. So. Is the other one Carrie? No, 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 no. Christine. The, Christine's one. Oh, Christine. Yeah. yeah, Christine came right after this, um, and then there was another one. Let's say Cujo. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yep. Oh wow. Yeah. So it's a big three, year for King. Three bangers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, three bangers. Three bangers. Yeah. One of them was Christine a, you know, had that crazy turnaround, right? Like it was. Yes, yeah. Because it came out that like I think that April, and then it came out the John Carpenter put it out in like that I think November it was that year November or December. Um, but anyway, Dead Zone had a budget of seven point one million, box office return of sixteen point three. Um, yeah, pretty good. Ninety uh, percent <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes and erroneously charted 69 on metacritic which look it only has eight reviews but come on 69 give me a fucking break uh roger <laughs> ebert 
nailed it in his three three and a half star review uh Reynolds, you have the the quote for that yeah right? yeah 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 uh the dead zone does what only a good supernatural thriller can do it makes us forget it is supernatural like rosemary's baby and the exorcist it tells its story so strongly that the lives of sympathetic believable people that we not only forgive the gimmicks we accept them there is pathos in what happens to the christopher walken character in the movie and that pathos would never be felt if we didn't buy the movie's premise I agree. So where do we start? Um, I think we'll, I think it's probably wise of us um, to kind of go through a timeline. And I'm going to be pulling a lot from the Cinefantastique volume 14, number two. It's a lot of numbers there. Uh, from December of 1983, which I will say thank you to our Losers Club historian, Bryant Burnett, for giving me a stack of mags, uh, many of which I've, I scanned also for the panel. Um, but none of which we wouldn't have if, you know, if it wasn't for Bryant. So kudos, Bryant. Uh, give yourself a pat on the back. Um, so here we go. So getting to the screen, it, it actually did take some time. So the screenwriter Jeffrey Bohm was basically there from the get-go. He was approached by Lorimar Film Entertainment's Carol Baum, who gave Jeffrey the book. and Baum uh, Baum. Baum Baum. Yeah, it's weird. It's a lot. Uh, and so Jeffrey saw a lot of potential in it. But here's the problem. At the same time, director Stanley Donnan, who had made a name for himself with iconic musicals like Singing in the Rain and Charade, uh, but it, he'd kind of fallen on hard times with Saturn Three. He got involved with <laughs> Sidney Pollack, and uh, they were, he, he was going to produce. So um, in a somewhat clairvoyant move, Bohm suggested Cronenberg, not knowing Donan was already involved. And it's very uh, interesting to think of a King adaptation directed by somebody who did Singing in the Rain. Oh, I know, right? I just <laughs> keep thinking cool. of I just keep thinking of the MGM. Uh, I don't know if anyone invents the ride of the movies at MGM, and the first thing you see is like an animatronic, like oh, I'm singing in the rain. <laughs> and as a kid, I was like the uncanny valley of it just scared the shit out of me, so I never watched the movie. Um, anyway, guess <laughs> it's what? Already a horror movie for you? <laughs> it's always already a horror movie. I'm like, God, you leave me, uh, get away from me, robots. Um, um, anyway, as we know, Donnan didn't work out, uh, but he really had always wanted to make a movie involving evil. Um, and as uh, Bohm argued, uh, Donan was attracted to evil in King's book, and he really enjoyed the prospect of showing the darker side of his own nature. Stanley must have experienced a certain frustration making all those cheery, good-natured movies. Um, and unfortunately, Evil, I he guess- He was jokerfied by working on charade. Yeah, probably. But well, guess what? The industry jokerfied him because uh, Lorimar closed its film division after a string of flops like uh, William Freakin's Cruising, which is a great movie, and Hal Ashby's Looking to Get Out. Um, so who bought it a year later? Uh, Enter Our Mystery Man. You know him on this podcast is <laughs> Dino, Dino, Dino and Uh So he comes in, doesn't like Steve, uh, doesn't like uh, Bomb's screenplay. So he taps King to write it. That doesn't work out, and here's why, according to Bohm and Cronenberg uh, uh, in an interview with uh, Cinema Fantastique. Um, uh, King has explained in published interviews that Dillontis rejected his screenplay because it was quote unquote too complex. But Cronenberg and Bohm say that's not the case. Cronenberg had the option to use King's script, but found it needlessly brutal. Steven's script had a lot about the Castle Rock killer, Cronenberg said. It began with Greg Stilson torturing some kid in the back room, and it never went into Johnny's past. I didn't want to open the film with a kid being tortured, especially since <laughs> at that point, you don't know who the hell Stilson is, what he's doing, or why. Bohm agreed. I guess 
this is pretty this is a pretty damning quote i guess king's script was was brutal there were a few hatchet murders in it but it really didn't strike me as such as i was reading it i just didn't think that his job as screenwriter was uh, as reflective as his performance as a novelist i think he missed the point of his own book namely the conflict of good and evil and the notion that decent people have responsibilities to their fellow man even if they won't admit it and don't like it King stuck fairly close to his novel, but he didn't really get any juice out of it. I don't think he did himself justice. So from there, Dino taps, you guessed it, Russian filmmaker Andrei Konchalowski. And, Can uh, I pop in really quick? Uh, I just yeah. think it's interesting. I think that quote, are we going to unpack that quote a little bit? Like uh, the, A little later, I think. Yeah, because I think we're going to save gonna, it. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the, the screenplay for a second. Um, okay, cool. And, and later I'll just on. say, though, too, it is... It's not unheard of that because, like, the first time we see Stilson in the book, he kills a dog. Right? He does, he yeah, yeah. A dog, dog to death, death. which yeah. is so fucking nasty and brutal. It's like, but I imagine that maybe they were like, "Don't kill a dog. You can have him torture a kid instead." Like, yeah, right. Audiences won't like him torturing a dog. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Sorry, keep going. Mike. Audiences didn't like uh, Andre Kojvalowski's Kod- uh, screenplay. Um, well, actually, uh, Randall, won't you read Cronenberg's script on or quote on? Yeah, sure. So of uh, Konchalovsky's screenplay, Cronenberg said, I didn't read it. His (laughs) script was was apparently in Russian, then translated into English, and then translated into Italian for Dino to read. I don't know how that could ever have worked out, but it happened. Uh, Konchalovsky's script appears to have gone almost wholly unconsidered, perhaps because the Russian was thought to be unable to grasp the Dead Zone's New England ambience and American texture. Well, it's so bizarre that he was. I know, <laughs> I know, it's so strange. I mean, th- th- there's there are other names out there that I I kind of tried to get uh, tried to lock down some sources, but I really couldn't. Like, I believe even the the director of Possession had took a crack at uh, the Dulowski. Yeah, yeah, that, that, wow. yeah, I took a crack. I didn't know I, that, but I couldn't find any other thing but the Wikipedia. So I was like, eh, I don't know. And Cinema Fantastique didn't have it cited anyway. But um, there's some other folks that got involved, and there's some big names here. So. And they're all strikes. They just keep coming. So Dino approaches both John Badham and Michael Cimino. Uh, and wow. Badham turns the, the project down because he found the storyline irresponsible, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I guess had to do with like the, the shooter at the sure, end or whatever. Sure, sure. Uh, Cimino, meanwhile, was obsessed with New Mexico, according to King. <laughs> Uh, and, and in a later interview with, I read with King, King said that like, I guess he was obsessed with like the, the largest truck or something like that that was in New Mexico. So I'm, I was but trying wait, to like wrap my head around it. What does that have to do with him writing I know, the it doesn't, he, he was, he no was in a phase. He was in his New Mexico phase and he <laughs> yeah. couldn't get I'll do the dead zone, but we got to set it in New Mexico. He's like, you know, I screwed up every, I, I screwed up, you know, the, the Hollywood system by uh, ruining independent, uh, you know, original productions with Heaven's Gate. So uh, anyway, um, by the way, Neither of them happened, but fortunately, Dino called in the real wolf of Hollywood, which was producer Deborah Hill. And the two of them had just worked on Halloween 2 and Halloween 3, uh, Halloween's Dominion. How about that? Uh, so Hill meets with Cronenberg, and then he get, you know, she gets him on board officially, and it's perfect timing because Cronenberg really didn't want to do another original screenplay. He was fried and exhausted from Videodrome, which um, apparently was just a nightmare of a, a shoot and went through like a bunch of different script rewrites. And so he was kind of like looking for something that he can, can kind of build off of. Uh, so they go, they bring back Baum and uh, they use his screenplay. And uh, from there, so this is uh, around summer of 1982, Bohm, Cronenberg and Hill shack up in a Toronto hotel for three days and rework the screenplay to what it is you see on screen. Um, and I have a, a few quotes on just what that, uh, that process was like. Um, this is actually the, 
this time is where Cronenberg was able to kind of take the visions and basically place Johnny in the visions, which was kind of revelatory for them as storytellers mm. at the point. Uh, so Baum says, our meetings progressed in a very spontaneous fashion. Uh, we opened the script to page one and we moved through it scene by scene. Deborah would occasionally drift into the next room and watch soap operas. She did make <laughs> some specific and valuable contributions. And I mean, storyline ideas, not just producerly comments like that would be too expensive. The thing that most surprised me about working with David was that once we began the revision of my script, he never once looked back at the novel. Asked to comment on this approach to adapting King's story, Cronenberg stated, I read the novel once and it certainly stuck in my head. William, Gold William Goldman once said in an interview, and this is something I actually uh, used and cited in our Dreamcatcher movie episode, um, uh, William Goldman said that the ideal way of translating a novel to the screen is to go through and pick out four or five of the best moments and then throw away the rest, using those chosen instances and connecting the dots. Although this wasn't what I had in mind in retrospect, I think this is basically what we've done. It's the tone and general feel that you should strike to reproduce, not the details. Gretchen, you just nodded. Is this something that, like, if Manhunt gets adapted, are you willing to have that approach be taken or in favor of it? 100%. I don't see the point of a totally faithful adaptation. Yeah, yeah. If I see Manhunt adapted, I want it to be adapted by someone with a vision for it. And I think that's honestly like one of the big, you know, positives for this and which honestly we can go into a little bit in a bit about the King adaptations and what those that work and what that don't and how sometimes being too faithful actually, I think handicaps a lot of the movies, but no faith, um, just vibes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Uh, so real quick. Uh, so by January 1983, filming began in the greater Toronto area. At the time, the closest to New England any King adaptation had come, which I thought was an interesting fact. And the movie hit theaters by October of that year. Um, and unlike Videodrome, um, it was a relatively smooth shoot. And in one of the many docs on the new Blu-ray uh, that you can get on, at Shout Out Factory, uh, production manager Jeffrey Chernov, uh, he basically said that nothing felt forced. He said everything clicked. And uh, Cronenberg, in the same article I've been pulling from, said the general tone of this production was just about the best I've ever had. Uh, so where does that, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, so since so much of this story is sensory, I think it would be really cool if we kind of break it down by the eye, which is Cronenberg, the mind, which is like Bohm and Cronenberg, and then the ears, we can kind of get into Cain, we can get into Cain in a little bit. Um, but if we're gonna be talking about the eye, we gotta talk about Cronenberg. And I know I've ranted a lot in here, um, but I, I did want to read this section from the same uh, cover story because I really do think it sets the table for our discussion on Cronenberg. Um, Randall, you want to take this? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, right. It's a little long, but I think it's really important to read before we get into Cronenberg. So um, The Dead Zone isn't as far from Cronenberg's directorial norm as his apprehensive followers seem to expect. One of Cronenberg's basic career-long fascinations has been with the character whose extreme perceptions or abilities have placed him outside society. Nola Carvath hidden away inside the psychoplasmic's retreat, giving birth to the brood. Rose hiding out inside a friend's apartment as the city around it succumbs to the rabid appetite she has induced. And most appropriate to the dead zone, Cameron Vale living his life as a scorned derelict, unaware of his relationship to a sub uh, submerged element of society called Scanners. Here, John Smith also dwells beyond the uh, cusp of human interaction, first in a five-year coma, then in a shack far removed from town. He finally re-enters society only to save it, salvation being, the, uh, being possible only through his own loss. 
This is something I think I deal with often, Cronenberg agreed. There's an obvious relationship there, but I've been offered scripts before that were ostensibly like that, and I've not been interested. I like the book because it has a very strange ending. It's not neat. In a way, John Smith is a Christ-like martyr. He dies for us, for humanity, and that's not what uh, can be called an upbeat ending. If you observe The Dead Zone in terms of character development and moral development, it's a very strange piece indeed. I'm mystified, actually, that it was such a bestseller. I suppose the book has its popular aspects, but it also has at the heart of it something dark and mysterious and unresolved, and not in the usual horror story way. The Dead Zone isn't exactly a horror novel, and this isn't exactly a horror film. It's very hard to categorize. And I think that's where we start, because I, th- I want to ask everyone, how would you categorize this film? I mean, do you consider it a horror film? Do you consider it a drama? Do you consider it a thriller? Gretchen, what would you, what would you call this movie? I think it's all of those things. I don't know that there's really anything meaningful to be taken from pushing it into just one. Yeah. Not to yeah. shit on anyone who's about to do exactly that. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's like, well, actually, uh, Mel, what, what about you? When you you just first watched this, so mm-hmm. you know, walking away from your you know your initial thoughts, did you would you even? Because I remember growing up, I saw this in the horror section. Would you put this in the horror section? So I I would put it more in like drama melodrama even it's just so saturated uh i mean visually but also like the performance from walk-in he does walk around like he's in a different film slash mm-hmm. world for the entire runtime and i was expecting maybe more of the cronenberginess that that quote references that you know there might be just a little more explicit <laughs> scares um so when we do get to the scissor scene that i'm sure we'll talk about uh it was like ah there's something like i'll yeah. latch onto that <laughs> um but i was really into the emotional depth of it and the haunt the hauntedness of of christopher walken's performance he's just a man doomed throughout the entire film yeah. like that's mm-hmm. how he moves through it and that to me was the central concern. And so if we have to pigeonhole it into a genre, it, d- it did just seem very dramatic to me. Yeah. I yeah, like the I man think- doom part oh, because I-, I wanted to throw that to you, Randall, cause you just watched the fly. And I think yeah. that this is a real good template for him going into the fly because it is at the heart of it, a tragic love story. And yeah. Which is I mean, I was, the fly is. Yeah. I was talking to Mel about the fly earlier and I was like, I was like the emotional resonance and all the various things that you can read just into that relationship. There's and and the ways in which like, uh, you know, um, like uh, notions of abuse, mental illness, physical illness and abortion, uh, pregnancy and all those things like they they add up to an, a deep emotional resonance that I wasn't expecting from that movie. And I think that's obviously what makes Cronenberg special is he has a really good knack for drama uh, within the the gross out shit. And so, yeah, Dead Zone, if I had to pigeonhole it, I'd call it a supernatural thriller. But but I mean, the thing is, the love story in this is not just, and it's, you know, it's pretty faithful to the book in terms of uh, how the love story plays out. But that to me is one of the most affecting love stories that King's ever written. And it's manifested so beautifully in this because it's impossible to, you know, it it was a victim of circumstance and, you know, and clearly the, and I loved Walken's performance because he captures the resentment, you know, he is mad about it. And, um, and that is powerful. And then and that scene of them just having that night together and then sending the kid off, sleeping together, having that one night to let yeah. it be that Love is that so 
fucking sad. And mm-hmm. I love that. So I, love I think how like, honest he was at that point where he's like, it's only been, it hasn't been this long for me. Like those feelings are still there. Of course I'm going to look at you. Like yeah. This. Right. Right. It's like better communication than most relationships. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just want, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure I'll talk about it. Yeah. I'm sure I'll talk about it more, but I think uh, part of what I really love about this movie is the anger that seeds off Johnny throughout this, which is I think so necessary for capturing that, everything was taken away from him and now he's been thrust into this role of savior which he approaches very you know uh reticently which i think is you know obviously he should do that but it's like uh it's it's to me very very sad he's a very tragic character mm-hmm. well they, they all call i mean there are a lot of quotes that are just calling this like cronenberg's most human film you know and and it but i but i but i think in a in a sense it is in this the sense of the way that it's it is so grounded in terms of the the arc and transformation that that Johnny goes through is 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 definitely not as literal <laughs> as a lot of <laughs> you know Cronenberg's movies. Um, I mean, and that's he, why that's they all called that, it. Human. Yeah, that's all yeah. that quote is saying is like because there's no the human doesn't it. fall apart in this. Exactly. <laughs> so therefore, we are calling it his most human film. Yeah, I mean, do you? It's not that it's not human. Like, well, I mean, there's there's definitely human, but yeah, there is deeply uh, for sure. I mean, there is a there is a an alternate universe somewhere where you know the tumors like literally like pulsating out of his head, and Cronenberg decided to lean into that side of him to make it a little bit more embellished. Do you kind of do you think that would have just absolutely derailed this movie if we saw that? Yeah. Like, every time he has a vision, there's like a, you know you see veins and <laughs> his fucking head starts pulsating. Like I mean, is that a side of Cronenberg that you I mean, you're glad that we didn't he didn't flex here? I think it might topple, like, just uh, uh, muck up the tone a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this is a a quieter movie than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not... I do think it might have been interesting to get into body horror, considering that disability is a a strong through line in this movie. So there there are ways you could have done it, but I think they would fundamentally change the film's focus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you, where do you think he stands the tallest in this movie, Cronenberg? Uh, I mean, is it, do you think it's just the visual palette? Do you think it's the way that he contends with the drama here? Um, where's the, the most Cronenbergian aspects of this film that you see? To me, it's the, the visions that you have these sudden, sharp, immersive intrusions of horror into this world of this guy who's totally 100% normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. before he died you know he's like maybe a little bit more academic than the people around him but otherwise uh totally con- he's so fucking square he won't even <laughs> fuck his girlfriend <laughs> that's true yeah uh yeah yeah and then suddenly he has to witness all this pain and suffering and like see children endangered and women murdered and it's it's torturous i think that yeah. cronenberg really sells that yeah. And it alienates him. And it's, you know, that's what yeah, is part of that tragedy. The, the isolation, the tragedy through yeah. isolation. And like and he just the, loses everybody because of it. Yeah. And, and it's so predetermined. It's from as soon as he wakes up from that mm-hmm. coma, you kind of know his course is set in the same way that once he gets into that teleporter with that bug, like, <laughs> yeah, it's over. Yeah, that's actually a really good parallel. I mean, and and I and I wonder if it does if like you looked at the runtime and it happens at the same time. If you did it parallel, you know, like how they always have the, like the video essays mm-hmm. online where like you know they do the inverse of The Shining with the the, the standard one. Um, what about the look of it? Because I I think what I love about this film is the fact that they leaned a lot on the Norman Rockwell 
uh, aspect of it. I mean, I think that there's there's something really uh, antiquated and yet timeless about the way he shoots this film. And that, you know, I, he at one point, I, I think he gave Christopher Walken like a book of Norman Rockwell portraits too. And I think everyone mm. was really leaning on it. And even down to the the, the political posters, uh, you know, it-, it Which it, are literally done in Rockwell's style, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I just love the look of it. And I think that really Which adds imparts to- Which imparts a real menace to it as well, because mm. ultimately- whatever you think of him, Rockwell is performing apologia for a country that's built on a mountain of skeletons. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like this uncanny valley in a way where you're yeah. like, well, wait a second. Why are all these things happening in what is, you know, considered to be a cozy sort of portrait, right? Right. Like we're looking at Americana and we're seeing its underbelly and it's uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 It's it's intriguing to me that this vision of New England I I feel like part of the isolationist aspect of like the New England aesthetic, we don't see a lot of town scenes. It's very like here's this house and what's happening in this house and like here's this I mean yes there's a political rally but it's one of the only times we see like a crowd. It's true. Um everything yeah. is so kind of delineated in this in mm-hmm. the very set 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 pieces like um and these these old homes and even when he goes to um the the place where he tutors like that's a whole other like mansion and the visions too like they're so isolated they're that that room is on fire the 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 kids breaking through the ice like it's just not connected geographically well Um, and then uh uh stilson at the end i find it so chilling the blackness behind him when mm -hmm. he uh shoots himself um you know, it's like the just the starkness of that to me was very, very, very chilling. Or yeah. even uh, his first vision of Stilson is set at a retreat, Camp David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's all like in the in the dark. Yeah. Like it, you really don't get a lot of the details in that. Re- so nothing the, the- seems shared. Everything is always kind of like there's no undercurrent connecting places. It, it it's like the visions. It's like this sporadic jolt and like this new sporadic jolt and like how the the connectedness of america is like a farce in, in this like new england setting yeah 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 i mean because even even something as familiar as the christmas lights like i keep thinking of the scene i was revisiting it again <laughs> fourth i think my fourth time in like the last two weeks but um <laughs> like i was watching it again and like sammy walked out and my girlfriend's just like wow you're watching dead zone again i think this is like more of like a, a like a every two year movie i think we could do this <laughs> i was like okay it's fine i know you're tired of came and score at this point but the i was rewatching the scene again with just um Johnny and his father and it's even a juxtaposition with the Christmas lights you know it's Mm. it's coming after like oh well I put them up because you know your mother always did and so it's coming in after her death and like that loss and yet it's this balmy feeling of seeing the Christmas lights and and what happens that tree is so DIY that tree is so it is well his dad just doesn't have the neck yeah yeah really doesn't and but it's so but it's but it feels so lived in too though like you know even like the little details of like you know i I was kind of laughing at like there's like a little christmas calendar that's on the wall and i'm like who the hell made that was it like herb or is it like johnny like i mean it's just it's such a a weird detail to have on there but it it is that sort of grounded familiarity that's juxtaposed upon their own loss and then also who comes in to penetrate that oh bannerman talking about oh there's been murder there's these awful murders that are happening so you do get that. I, I I almost feel like that's that's Cronenbergian in itself, just taking that that sort of um, kind of breaking our comfort in a way. And 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 you know, obviously he does that with like body horror, um, and that's you know his his, his nom de plume. But like 
I think here it's a little more subconscious, you know, like, and I, and I think it works to the advantage a little bit. And it's also very, I would say, um, true King's book because King's book, it, it, it is a drama, but there are horrors within. Um, yeah, and, I, and I King is, King is obsessed with the suburban community and the rural community as a place where violence and alienation are allowed and even encouraged to fester. Yeah. Where people yeah. are in these little closed houses, just sort of spiritually rotting over time. You know, you think about Butch and Henry Bowers from it, yeah. just sitting out in their little shack in the middle of nowhere, trying to decide which of them is going to murder the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's yeah. so many houses like that in King's work. Oh, absolutely. It makes sense that Stilson would then present the illusion of like, togetherness from, yeah, from absolutely. that disconnection. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and of course in this you have Frank Dodd and his mother who are, mm-hmm. are similarly locked up alone in a house doing God knows what. Yeah. Yeah. And just uh I wrote in my notes exquisite clutter like oh, in yes. that <laughs> in that house, you know? Yeah. It's just... yeah, the the interiors are all incredibly New England. I grew up in New Hampshire. It's all like completely true to fact. Yeah. yeah. It looks like fucking t- like freezing in that house that, <laughs> and it, there's like that sickly like, light like it's, yeah. oh i love it the green oh, it. yeah it feels like yeah, a the grayish green like, blue yeah yeah, yeah it, 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 it screams is like um the it's funny because like i in psycho it, you know hitchcock's hitchcock's psycho which like there's another well i guess there's gus van Sant's. <laughs> but um one of my the creepiest moments for me is is when vera miles is investigating the old house and um and goes into norman's room and it's like very you know it's, it's childlike and you know cronenberg talks about that and behind the scenes of how d- he really tried to deliberately make dodd's room like look infantilized you know right where, it does it, look like a little boy's room and it's yeah. so creepy that like that gets me so much because it's just like you know, not only does the mother know, but that that just the the set decoration alone in that that scene does so much work to kind of bring in that sort of unnerving horror it's that you incredibly get. Incredibly incestuous and frightening. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, Even when he's but, undressing or like getting ready, he, he the, his movements when he's back in the house is like, oh, you've regressed in some weird way. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, uh, God, I, I, yeah. We'll talk about Dodd in a second because I have some questions about, uh, um some fun like what ifs with him but um i i one of the things i do love about this direction too is just and there's a quote that he says um or chernoff says uh, one of the production designers he said uh you cast locations to tell the story and that really struck with me because watching this movie and as you just pointed out mel like the the disconnectedness but yet the the intimacy of these locations Mm -hmm. Is so is such a direct juxtaposition to how they make movies today. Where you know, I think Justin, fellow co-host, uh, always jokes about how like, oh look, another movie shot in Atlanta, and like it looks like it all the time. Like it never really feels like you're ever actually in a different place. Like you know, I was watching like the new Spider-Man movie. These movies are like fucking billion-dollar budgets and stuff, and yet they, they look all like they were look- shot nowhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I never feel like I'm ever going anywhere, but in this movie, I really do. And I think that yeah. what do you, you mean know, you don't like being in city? <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, right. But like, I insert I, city name here. I, just, I love to I, be I, an urban center. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, oh, here it is, train tracks. Neat. Um, you know, oh, we need a set piece, and here's some power lines. Like, I, I don't know. It's just with this, it's just there's such a singularity to a lot of the set decorations here, um, even down to like the tunnel. 
you know, and oh, the that tunnel rule is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. I don't know. It's I I think that the the attention to detail in terms of location does so much uh, heavy lifting in this movie, and it's it's certainly what also adds to the Kingian flavor to me. Um, yeah. because that's that, just that so kind part of, of the stonework book. tunnel um, with like shaped blocks. There are a ton of them all over New England, Massachusetts. Like, yeah. there's one maybe half an hour from me. <laughs> uh, they're so yeah, you're so right, it. Mike. Like, I can't even think of a set piece off the top of my head in a recent blockbuster that is like, wow, what a singular location that they have chosen. Like, there aren't any. Even yeah. like the the movies where they have some gigantic futuristic alien city. It's just like, oh, it's fucking spires and domes, spires yep. and yeah. domes. <laughs> You remember the, the Star Wars prequels where everything you looked at was like the most insane fucking shit you'd ever seen? <laughs> yeah. Like where's yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi now? Oh, he's in a diner with a four-armed, greasy Greek <laughs> chef alien. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, now it's like, you know, I guess they try to stress the practicality of it. It's like, yeah, but you know, you're just shooting in a desert and you add like a spire in the background. Like that's, you know, yeah, sure. It's practical, but you're not taking me anywhere that I haven't been to anymore. You know, right. like I, I just trying to undermine the union crews that like do location scouting. Oh, hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. Like, I know about place. I've been to place. I could, we can <laughs> put we a spire on what it. Location <laughs> yeah. feels like. Well, it's just like, it's funny. Cause I was, I was reading up on like, even just the, sh- the, the shooting for the dream of, um, or not the dream, but the vision with Wyzak, where, you know, it's, it takes place in World War II. And, um, like, Cronenberg wanted to shoot it in Yugoslavia. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that would never happen today. And, like, they only didn't because they were kind of, um, you know, they 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 found, a, um, a, a, I think, a brick building or something like that that was off outside of Toronto. And they're like, oh, okay, we would make this happen. Um, I'm sure Dino was probably like, yeah, no, make it happen here. We're not flying all over the fucking Yugoslavia. <laughs> But the fact the fact that that was could be on the table is pretty wild. And another Dino movie, Manhunter, which we talked about on Halloween, is like, um, you know, I was kind of astounded that like Man was insistent on shooting in every city that takes place in that movie, and they did. They shot in all the different. You don't even you can't even tell that they're in Atlanta, and yet they shot in Atlanta. That would never happen today. And I just I don't know. I I love that, but yeah, I, I we can still talk about Cronenberg, but I really want to focus on the screenplay because I think that's yeah. really important here. Um, do you think the episodic structure? that they bring forward here is cleaner than if they would have went for, you know, King's parallel structure, because you have the, the true prophet and false prophet that's in, you know, King's novel. I, I don't know if it works w- as well as a movie. If you do that, I, I, but this movie is think- short. This movie is a tight. Mm-hmm. Like, it's an hour and 40, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, I, no. Yeah. Uh, I think the parallel structure it works so well with the book. Like I love that structure in the book, but it seemed to me a really nice decision to focus solely on on Johnny here. To the to the point where I am a little unmoored by the scene where he is not present and we see Stilson acting evil and like threatening that one guy. I'm like, where? Whoa, whoa the POV is like weird now. <laughs> like, why that, we, that's true. Why are we yeah. with these people? Because <laughs> um, that's the one instance we really don't have it. I mean, I, I was yeah. trying to yeah. count it. Like, I think it is the only scene that we don't have, other than yeah, it, I think when Sarah leaves and she like pulls off to the side or something like that. Yeah, but, I noticed yeah. that immediately. I was like, this is a departure. Like, yeah, it's strange. <laughs> yeah, I I think that they ultimately made really good structural decisions you know some of the some of the episodic plots like i think the thing with with dodd probably could have used another five or ten minutes mm-hmm. but it's good and it stands yeah. on its own merits and ultimately it gets you where you need to go and is affecting along the way i i don't think that 
the parallel structure could have built tension and inevitability in quite the same way. Or maybe yeah. it could. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> yeah, I'll say. It's also a trap, I, too, like, to do that with Stilson and, and inevitably be like, well, I'm drawing all these comparisons to this specific figure, and it's mm-hmm. going to get, like, so hindered by, yeah, the politics of it all. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing is a lot harder to get across in film without being, like, belabored. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I agree. Yeah. yeah, I'll just say the episodic nature of it. I think it contributes to the almost stop and start and stop aspect of Johnny's like post-accident life where he every time he seems to start building something new, it kind of gets taken away from him, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. whether it's or it's just or it it's something he doesn't want to continue doing. Like, you know, it's just these episodes in his life that he comes out of it. He enters it alone. He comes out of it alone. Right. Like and uh, so I think it contributes to that sense of of socially and perhaps emotionally no forward progress um Mm. and i think that contributes to the frustration and because i I very much noticed that as well that the um the uh yeah just the the nature that it's basically a series of subplots until we get to that final part and um like i just love that like sarah you know it is sarah right her name Mm -hmm. yeah 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 she like i love that she like disappears you know for a good chunk of the movie you know and when she does come back it is very shocking and it does contribute to that sense of you know uh like it hurts him to see her Mm -hmm. you know he's still not over her so yeah yeah and it's it's so natural too cries after her at the door that's that's like such a crushing scene oh 100 percent. oh god it's every time i watch it it just kills me and i'm like sitting there just tearing up like with it and uh yeah that that's the thing that i think the way they weave in the sarah elements is is really uh important because it could be so maudlin but it never gets maudlin it just (laughs) feels real and I also kind of say the same thing with Stilson. Like I think in, in, in lesser hands, the whole Stilson thing could come off as so left field and random, but I think that the script does such a good job in naturally building to that conclusion. I mean, like you first see it through, you know, there's a, I think we talked about this in the commentary track that we did for this, um, you know, and about the idea of the television being this conduit for story. And like the television does lead to a lot of things into these, these episodes. Like there's a, there is a mirroring structure in this movie of Cronenberg using, and probably Baum, using the television to get to the next episode. You know, he, he learns about the Bannerman, like he, he, you know, he's called into, you know, by Bannerman about the, 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 the murders, but ultimately sees the, 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 the collateral damage of it on television and it pulls him in. Same thing with Stilson. Still, he meets, he's, he, he runs into Stilson in the house and then they later on see Stilson on the television. And then that leads into the episode. And I think that, I don't know, Cronenberg and Bohm do a great job in just like weaving these episodes in so they don't feel too left field. I mean, like, honestly, the only one that maybe feels a little left field is the stuff with Chris where he's tutoring. Cause you know, you don't re- like the dad just kind of comes out of nowhere and is like, Hey, can you, can you teach my kid? But then it kind of calls back to the beginning where he was a teacher. So it makes right. sense. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I um, think something that, that is very often ignored when talking about this movie is that it comes out at the same time that cable and network news are transitioning to the model we know today, which is, Yep. 24-7 atrocity coverage and anxiety production. And that's Absolutely. very much that's very much the role that TV occupies in this movie. I mean, it's it's not very different from watching the 2016 election returns, where it's like oh, yeah. structured to give you a panic attack. 
you have to watch Stilson rant and rave on the TV and in the same breath you see the serial killer out there and like it's too much for a human brain to take in let yeah. alone a human brain that's like oh shit I could do something yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the the tragic element of this movie is that Johnny has the power to change the world which is such a grim fucking thing yeah. <laughs> hate that for him <laughs> i know well yeah. there is an escalation too right like it's the like i feel like the political element works in this because i think the whole movie you're saying okay he's he's witnessing and stopping these things that are these individual tragedies right like first it's uh it's the girl in the bedroom and Mm -hmm. but then it's like bigger because it's the serial killer and then it's this like tragedy of children falling through ice and it's like they're escalating in a lot of ways and then so you kind of know he's eventually going to uh stumble upon something he's going to shake somebody's hand and he's going to see something really catastrophic and i think that's where you know it is it we're already being prepared that he's going to uh the weight on his shoulders is going to grow heavier and heavier and heavier and when you introduce politics you introduce uh foreign relations and international affairs all this other stuff political um everything right, like problems it, that can't be resolved yes and it's like you know it's <laughs> going there and so, except yeah yeah and, and that that's also like makes presupposes yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, that also makes sense why it's him and not the parallel structure. We need all of the yes. stakes to come back to this like one person. And yeah. if we're getting both him and Stilson, it's a little bit of a, a a tougher balance and we won't feel it as much from Johnny's perspective. It's also important because we need to be so grounded in Johnny because otherwise this is just minority report the good version. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, like, and also yeah, and also like almost the kind of I mean, if you're not with him and you don't really believe in his 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 uh, his mission, then it becomes like Mark David Chapman the movie. <laughs> it's yeah. like you know, or you know, name any other political assassin. Granted, you know, Mark David Chapman is not a political assassin. He's killed John Lennon, but anyway, um, <laughs> so another I, I digress. <laughs> um, but I digress on that. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I I think what's also kind of interesting is the 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 way that this is kind of building towards the next question I wanted to ask was. The, the visions and how it drains his life force versus what King does, which was the tumor. And I think that the draining, and I guess you could make the the argument that it still is the, the, the brain tumor because that's ultimately what's probably killing him. Um, but we just don't really stress that on screen or Cronenberg doesn't really stress that on screen. But I, I, I feel like the, the, the draining of his body works more in sync with the metaphor that we're discussing here. Um, do you think it would be a little too distracting if all of a sudden, like we are every other episode where like why Zach comes in is like, Oh, by the way, Johnny, um, we just did a cat scan and, um, here's your brain tumor now. And then it's like, I, I just think that would be a little too much. I mean, I, so I, what, what are your thoughts on this change here from page to screen? I think the story works better without the tumor. It makes yeah. it rest more on Johnny's choice, which is ultimately what the story is about. Yeah. Yeah, because there's, I think it, the tumor is a ticking clock, right? That mm-hmm. he's he's going yeah. out, and you don't really get that here. You get the sense that he's being just beaten down, but he could mm-hmm. still keep going. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the question: is like, how long uh, do I keep saving the world <laughs> you know, before right. it kills me? Yeah. Instead of uh, I have I've got you know an inoperable uh, tumor that's going to kill me, uh, and I've got to do something before that happens. I think it's more interesting the other way around. Yeah, yeah. it's such a great. It gives you the room to subvert. I think the trope of like vision. Even just the word is like flash of inspiration. It's something that fills you. It's something that makes you really energized. Right. And, and to it- him, the more that he sees, the the weaker 
unless able he becomes mm-hmm. perspective is, is literally killing him <laughs> thing to do yeah. like you get this jolt but it it's weakening you it's not actually galvanizing in any way it's like god this is my fucking life (laughs) right and it it so closely mirrors the experience of living in a world that you know to be fundamentally bloody terrible and unjust and knowing that if you went out and spent your life ripping at part of it maybe that would be a more worthwhile endeavor than living out however many decades you've got left yeah and you have to live with making that decision every day mm-hmm. yeah yeah and they like, really I do know put him in a corner. i know that if i blew up the the fucking transcontinental pipeline that would make more of a difference than anything else i could fucking do in my life <laughs> yeah and they would also shoot me for it <laughs> pro pro and con list in the background yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've got a whiteboard going but on. I, and i and i almost love the fact that instead of the tumor they give loss you know, like it, it's a little bit more, they stress the idea that whatever normalcy or whatever life that he had wanted or he had built for himself is just not going to happen. I mean, I think that's kind of what the beauty of this movie is, is that and, and what makes this movie very adult, um, which is a really thing I want to stress about this this film, um, is just is, is just the maturity and the, the, the sort of future that he had wanted for himself and that he had glimpsed himself before he even had these visions is just never going to happen. And I think that's something that Cronenberg uh, revisits big time in The Fly um, into a much more literal level and more grotesque level and, and far more depressing level. But um, it, it's just interesting how the it, it's almost like the, instead of the brain tumor, you almost get like just the tragic love story, which was always there in the source yeah. material. But I think it's a little more embellished here. Um, or this is in, a thought I haven't quite... Been, articulated all the way but i do think that what you're talking about mike and the sort of predetermined again the doomed nature of his character and the film mm-hmm. the fact that we know it's gonna it's just gonna escalate until something big kills him basically i feel like it is built into the dialogue on like a very sentence level in a very mm-hmm. sentence level way like when people speak in this film i thought of nothing more keenly or like what kept occurring to me was the ted chang short story the story of your life like it's like people just enacting the future that they already know is going to happen like that's the cadence and the tone of like the dialogue in this movie and in that story it's a positive it's a positive thing it's a great story it's spun in this way where it's like you want to perform that play you want to fulfill what you know to be the future and here it's it's the opposite you're feeling the the sort of grinding of like performing that future. Um, and I just, I, I feel that on a sentence level with how people talk in this film. Yeah. I mean, it helps too, because so much of the exposition is, is, is funneled through like debates and digressions. Like why is such a, an integral character mm-hmm. for these moments? Because, you know, you can bring them in and you can have kind of those, those, you know, those debates that, a lot of the times I feel like a lot of screenwriters wrestle to put that onto screen because they're like, Oh, how do we do this without leaning on so much obvious exposition? And a lot of the times, I mean, it's, it's not surprising to me when you look at the structure of this movie, he appears at like the 25% and then he also appears at the 75%, you know, mm-hmm. you get him to understand the, the function of his, of his actions. And then at 75%, you get him to come back in to be like, Oh, you can change it. You can do Which it. Which is so you know? quick. It's like almost inconsequential. The d- the dead zone that is the title of yeah. the film. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. 
because uh, to clarify that, because you know, in the in the book, which even Cronenberg is like, I don't really understand what King was trying to get at with with, with what he's saying with the Dead Zone. Um, because in the in the in the book, it's like it refers to like the part of Johnny Smith's brain that is irreparably damaged, um, which is kind of what causes the the sort of psychic potential in the movie it's the the part of his psychic vision that's missing it's the the blank area he can't see it's the uh the outcome that's yet to be determined which i think is such a cleaner (laughs) way yeah it's a much better metaphor right yeah so um and i guess that kind of ties into Cronenberg's quote about in order to be faithful to the book you have to betray the book and we kind of talked about that before but i kind of want to get into it a little bit here because i think that's honestly what is so important about some of the best King adaptations. We, we, we really went into it on the shining episode because I think one of the things I was trying to discredit is this idea that the shining is not an adaptation of Stephen King's book. It's like, Oh, it doesn't, you know, get the book, but he's, but he does though, because meant like emotionally and, and spiritually, the movie is very, is very in sync with a lot of what King's trying to get out there. He's just not yeah, literally it, showing the, you know, the betrayal of, of, you know, Torrance against his family. It's more he's telling cerebral. A yeah. He's telling a different story in the shining than what King told in the book. Yeah. And that's why King doesn't like it. I think emotionally and, and yeah. tone wise and, and everything like atmospherically, I think it very much honors the book, but yeah, he just, King is interested in the emotional arc of Jack Torrance and Kubrick wasn't at all. Uh, See, I think yeah. personally, for King, from what I've heard in interviews, the the real issue is that he doesn't like the way that Kubrick characterized Wendy. Oh, yeah, yeah, that too. yeah, that was a because big part, in, yeah. in the original yeah. novel, Wendy really gives as good as she gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and while Shelley Duvall gives this incredible performance, and then of course you have to to get into the, the psychological hellscape around it that Kubrick put her through. Oh, don't worry, we, we went all through that. So. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. um, but she she's very much sort of emotionally a husk by the time the film starts, and yeah. I think that's interesting, and I think it works beautifully for the movie. But King so often has like these strong, competent mothers, and I I think it it bothered him to have that element removed. So it's not like I think King is correct and The Shining is bad. Obviously, it's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. But I think he has real reasons for for disliking it. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I, I just meant in the, in the idea that like, it doesn't have to be a literal adaptation. And right. I think that's kind of what the, I think, I think Cronenberg's, you know, way of, of uh, kind of marrying those thoughts does a better job in just presenting that idea. Cause like you could look at this and you can still see the, the, the connect, you can still connect the dots for the most part with the book, with the movie here, where in a way you can't really do that so much with the shining. Um, even if the core beats are still there, but I think there are a little more specificity from page to screen in, in this, in this realm. But I, you know, just looking back and even looking ahead past the dead zone, I mean, wouldn't you say that some of the, like, the best King adaptations are the ones that aren't so, literal i mean i'm thinking even of like mick Garris's. like he he gets so literal and it kind of takes away from the emotionality of it all so it, i don't know no I, I think that pretty much across the board the best adaptations always take liberties yeah i'll oh. say because you mentioned that bone quote that king kind of missed what made the dead zone special mm-hmm. in his script and i think that is just a really you know that that quote sang to me because 
you know, we've talked about so many King adaptations, obviously, and the ones he scripts are almost always ones that we have major problems with, right? Except for Pet Cemetery, yeah. which we think is pretty good. Uh, but the thing is, that story is so clean and its metaphors and its ideas with everything that I feel like it would be hard to fuck up that script. With like the stand, obviously, that he did the miniseries, as much as we enjoy it, uh, there's a lot about it that we have problems with. And and the thing is, like the idea that King was playing up the brutality aspect of it is interesting because, mm -hmm. you know, he's such a genre head and he grew up watching these, uh, you know, these um, horror movies, these sci-fi movies, all these things that played up the crowd pleasing aspects, the stuff that people go to genre for. But, uh, but, but the thing King's is, he's an entertainer. He's like a pulp yeah, head. Like he wanted to. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like he's he's sometimes, I think, less interested in presenting uh you know, the complexities in, within his books than he is sort of the simple pleasures, you know, the axe to the head or whatever. And and but he's also somebody who enjoys a good corny scare, like a popcorn scare. And right. like, I think he'll put a lot of those in there. And then Need somebody like this is a great example of that. It's pretty much nothing but. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I find that super interesting. So that quote was really interesting to me because uh, like the idea that they rejected King's script because it didn't it didn't engage with the complexities of the material is very interesting. And like just him saying, he's like, I feel like he missed the point. of. I like the book. idea that King just yeah. like loves the movies so much that even yeah. though he's adapting his own material, he's like a movie and like yeah. totally kind of. He was also super coked out. At this oh, yeah. I mean, this is around. The, this is not too long after Cujo. So it's like, you know. Yeah, he, he definitely was in a different world. And and honestly, go watch uh, 1982's Creep Show or Night Riders uh, to to get an idea of where King was at at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think also is that you know there was this still this estimation or assumption by Hollywood that King or the IP of King was supposed to be you know scary. I mean, look at the movies that came out that year. I mean, granted, Cujo's an incredible drama. When you really think about it, um, and and I think Christine is a little more psychological than than a lot of people give it credit for. But you know, he's coming off of eighty two, eighty one, so it's like you know, you get like the Creep Show had just coming out the, the 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 previous year, so he's still in like kind of easy comics land, maybe where he might think that all right, maybe they do want just a horror movie from me. Um, but you know, you see this all across Hollywood, where the adaptations come out, and then the authors come back and they go, oh well, you know they kind of they kind of found the right way to write this and they 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 smoothed out some wrinkles that i had on there and that's certainly the case with the dead zone um there were in, in the the cinefantistic article um they i want to read a little section right here uh there were also aspects of cronenberg's film that king preferred to his own novel uh in a couple of cases he said that he wished that he had done things the way we did them which I found extremely flattering, Cronenberg said. For example, we made the kid that Johnny tutors, who is a pivotal character, very young, around 11 years old, whereas in the novel, he's an 18-year-old jock with a Corvette in his swimming pool for whom it's hard to feel a great deal of sympathy. We decided, Jeffrey and I, to make the character of an age that would remind Johnny of himself as a child, someone who is very sensitive and shy. In the book, Johnny protects a fire in the gym and saves a student from it. But I decided to change that to a honky accident, continued Cronenberg. The gym fire was, I felt, straight out of Carrie. And a gym doesn't hold the same attractions for an 11-year-old. I wanted to avoid that whole high school teenage thing because I feel it's been done to death. And Stephen said that he would have done the book our way if, he had, if I had thought about it. You know... It, I think that's a pretty great, uh, you know, connection. You don't really see that a lot of the time. Endorsement, yeah. Right. So I will say some things did as the, as this happens in Hollywood. And this kind of rounds us out um, on talking about the, the Cronenberg bomb stuff that, 
you know, things in the cutting room floor and even just before you even get to the, you know, the shoot, they get excised and it's obviously for the best. There's, they did shoot the Johnny's injury, you know, the hockey injury in the beginning and they ultimately Mm -hmm. cut it, which I think was smart. I don't Mm -hmm. think you need it. And then what's really important that they cut out was uh, the original ending. <laughs> and this is crazy. It, it, it's fucking wild. Do you, do you have the original ending? Or you, do you have it up? Yeah, I can uh, read it. Yeah, just read it. It's fucking wild. Like, it, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. But okay. you'll see. Cronen- that I think this would have ruined the movie. But yeah. Cronenberg insisted on one major change in Bohm's screenplay. The jettisoning, jettisoning of a trick ending that the director described as a direct ripoff of Dress to Kill. About this unusual finale, Bohm said, I liked the trick ending quite a bit, as did Dino, as a matter of fact. It was about the only thing that Dino liked in that draft. I don't think it ripped off Dress to Kill, although it's certainly a De Palma-like ending. So in that draft, the Castle Rock killer is not killed when his identity is revealed, but rather he is arrested and sent to an institution. Near the end of the movie, before Johnny goes out to shoot Stilson, he receives a call from Bannerman who tells him that the killer's (laughs) escaped and is looking for him. Johnny <laughs> figures that his life is at an end anyway, so he's not concerned and goes after Stilson. Then that scene plays out uh, pretty much the same, except that Johnny is not killed, but taken to a hospital full of bullets. Uh, Sarah comes to see him. He's on his deathbed, and she and Herb uh, uh, are carrying on this vigil in the hospital as he lay dying. Herb tells Sarah that she can't stay all night, and she leaves after saying goodbye to Johnny, who's barely conscious. He turns to Herb and whispers, Garage. Herb's not sure that he heard him correctly. He walks Sarah to the elevator. She goes down to the parking garage and walks to the car. Uh, Then we see the killer skulking amongst the cars. The killer (laughs) ultimately sneaks up on her. She turns and sees him in this awful gleaming De Palma-like knife, and then he starts hacking her to pieces. We cut away from this gruesome scene to Johnny's father, who is still standing beside the elevator and still bothered by what his son whispered to him, and then he looks up and sees where the elevator is. As we cut back down to the garage, we realize that what we've just seen was in fact the vision that Johnny experienced. Uh, Sarah has not been murdered. Again, in the garage, Sarah walks to her car, the killer is seen skulking around, and everything plays exactly the same until just before he plants the knife, uh, Herb appears with Johnny's walking stick in hand and starts beating the killer over the head with it. Herb saves her in the nick of time. It was a trick and perhaps derivative, but I think it worked really well. No, yeah, that uh, sucks. That would be I awful. <laughs> I'm just like laughing at this, like, this movie that contains so many layers and everything and it ends with an old man like bopping a guy on the head with his walking stick it's just, so corny uh god yeah it's um uh, not good I, I that that would just be we wouldn't be talking about i mean obviously we'd be talking about it because it's, it's a stephen king movie and we have to talk about it, but, but I, we'd be like oh we got to talk about the ending it yeah. wouldn't have been the movie i'd picked to talk about yeah, yeah right right so yeah, to, to round us out, uh, like to, to conclude this stuff, uh, I think this quote about what Cronenberg took from the dead zone is really important. Um, there are people who've seen the dead zone and miss my quirky dialogue and eccentric characters, those people who aren't Stephen King fans, who find it too simple and naive, Cronenberg continued. The dead zone ref- was refreshing work, but whether or not it'll have any resonance in my future work, I only know when I sit down to write my next screenplay. Having only directed the dead zone makes me feel stronger, not weaker, or in any way creatively diminished. I approach it the way any contemporary director from the traditional mold would have approached it. I worked with a writer and a producer to come up with a script. The dead zone let me know that I could work it in the retra- I could work in the traditional mold and do it well. I've learned that I don't have to write my own stuff in order to make it work or to understand how to make it work for the screen. Whether the dead zone is a box office hit or not, it works. 
I agree with him. And I think in hindsight, when you see where he goes after this, uh, you know, I think this was a graduation for Cronenberg in many yeah. ways. I love that he's just like, yeah, I just learned to direct. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a job and like you can. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) I just want to say reading like reading quotes from this Cinema Fantastique article, like it makes me miss these kind of profiles uh, and the way and the sort of frank way that they speak, because I feel like everything is filtered through PR now whenever a director speaks. I mean, not not in totality. We still get some great interviews now and then. But man, I miss like interviews where they were willing to talk about things that went wrong and anxieties they had and things like that. You know, it's like now everything's just like he was great. I loved working with him. You know, it's also so long. It's like Mike oh, it's pulled so together long. these scans, and I'm like, well, I'll, this is a, like a book. Like this is <laughs> so much. Um, yeah, yeah full disclosure, it, I didn't, I didn't read them as closely as you did, Mike. But it's, it's really cool the depth of the coverage. It's, it's interesting. I really want to find the physical uh, version because I have, um, I have like the Twilight Zone magazine that's that's on it, but it has um, Timothy Hutton in, in, in Hutton Hutton in the Ice Man on the front, but then it just on the side little thing says. Stephen King's the the dead zone, but I love these old magazines. I mean, not to mention you get all these really cool advertisements and stuff in there, but to conclude our history, we got to talk about Michael Kamen for a second, because I do think that the score to this movie is so important. And I don't know if this movie works as well as it, as it does, if it doesn't have that score. Um, and I just think it sets the tone immediately. I think it, it brings the sort of epic uh, nature of the film and kind of takes it kind of um alleviates the the pressure off of Cronenberg a little bit to kind of go for sweeping shots go for all the stuff like it it just kind of lives in the music and the sound what are all, what are all thoughts on on this score for this is this something that does it pull at your heartstrings in the right ways or do you think it kind of you think Cayman goes a little too far sometimes <laughs> no i thought it was really of a piece with with the film um and like you said it does what the best scores do, which is add context and add emotional complexity to the film. So rather than resting on the score or being at odds with the score, the score functions almost like voiceover narration and that yeah. it tells us something different from what we're seeing. I like that voiceover. I like that a lot. Actually. Yeah, I always think about Scorsese. You know, people give him a lot of shit for doing a ton of voiceover. But his voiceover always adds characterization mm-hmm. and tells you something that provides important context. You're not just looking at, or you're not just hearing someone ramble about what you're already being shown. Yeah. God, it's weird yeah. how easy it is to forget that because <laughs> we're so used to like, that's me. <laughs> like You yeah. might be wondering why I was in the cafeteria like, <laughs> instead of actually, yeah. actually um, amplifying. How did I get and, here? <laughs> yeah. I'll yeah. say too, like, um, Having watched The Fly yesterday, one of the things I was struck by watching it was um, that he allowed there to be a more traditional kind of emotional score uh, in that movie. Like that movie, even though it's like this gross out horror in a lot of ways, I feel like a modern movie that adopts that would not go for sort of the traditional string led um, orchestral kind of. Um, emotional first score like now it'd be some like creepy electronic mm-hmm. thing right like that's like how so many movies are yeah. and that's not bad I mean that that has its place but it's like so I appreciate that Cronenberg 
I mean, at least in those movies, I'd have to revisit other ones because it's been a minute, but that he he isn't afraid to allow the music to uh, create that emotional context and, and to also be the slightest bit like verge on schmaltzy at times. Like, yeah. I don't mind that at all. Yeah. I think that actually contributes something like it contributes the weight of it all. And I loved it in The Fly. I thought it, it contributed. It helped ground sort of the more emotional moments amidst all the disgusting stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah it makes yeah. total sense it's, to me that The Fly has been adapted into an opera. And oh, yeah. Also that this could work as and I like I'm not even an opera mm. person, but just looking at the structure and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The soundtrack to The Fly is one of the most devastating bodies <laughs> of music I've ever encountered. It was yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I I listened to it on its own. I own it on fucking vinyl. Nice. <laughs> that is a a movie I um they, they played at the music box last year at the, the 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 music box has this garden area for patio screenings and they're like and they're like oh we're showing the fly next week and I was like what like <laughs> the, the, the fly at the patio everyone just like drinking wine and watching the most devastating movie ever put to screen <laughs> like that movie like depresses the hell out of me like it's one I, it's one of my favorite movies of all time but like oh, it's holy gutting. fuck yeah. does that hurt it so hurts like uh anyway some last minute fun facts because they're great um Bohm finished the, the script the day reagan was elected uh oh. that was interesting the gazebo was shot just for the film uh was built just for the film it's still there the town That's didn't nice. want it and now it's like one of their selling points in the brochures which i thought was pretty funny um it was viciously cold during the gazebo sequence and you could see it it's uh cronenberg uh, said it was he's it's never been colder shooting a scene in any of his movies it was 30 to 40 degrees below zero whoa um the tunnel, this is really creepy. Eh? This is uh, some Soul's Midnight for you. Uh, tunnel is called the Screaming Tunnel. It's in Niagara Falls. And local legend recounts that the tunnel is haunted by the ghost of a young girl who was uh, raped inside the tunnel and her body was burned to prevent any evidence from being found. Um, all versions of this urban legend end with the girl's screams filling up the tunnel as she was burned to death. And uh the crew says that um during the shoot like weird things would happen like the generators generator would freeze probably because it was 40 degrees below zero but okay. <laughs> um the dolly would freeze uh and a lot of other weird things happen that like with people like lingering around that area you could still go to it still there um of course it is it's a fucking stone tunnel but um anyway yeah so that's uh some creepy stuff i always love bringing up some ghost stories here yeah uh, that's creepy yeah uh well we talked about the talent let's talk about the stars uh and we do that in a section we like to call heroes and villains i'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown welcome to the losers club (laughs) in heroes and villains we are going to talk about well the heroes and villains uh and this movie's full of them <laughs> as they are it's a king story so why not uh cine fantastique the the great publication that i have been giving tons of free press today uh they called this cast a diploma for cronenberg so let's talk about the main players and i guess we can kind of get into the supporting stuff as we get into some of the episodic things but we got to talk about christopher walken i i mean with the exception of like one or two scenes is is, is actually as mel just pointed out we're really with him the entire time in this movie. Um, yeah. I mean, this whole fucking movie is on his shoulders. And I, I know that, you know, the whole ice thing is memeable and stuff today, but I, I, I don't know. Is, I think it's, is it a stretch to call this his best performance? I, I mean, that's, yeah. That's... I personally love him in like stuff like thirst. I don't know if I would call dead zone his best performance, but it's, it's in the top five for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just love how me. grounded just... it is. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's different. And he is so... I'm glad you mentioned the anger, Randall, because I was going to focus more on his vulnerability or like the fact that he's so kind of targeted and broken down as we've discussed. But it's also that resentment. It's that like really Mm -hmm. everything that he wants to do is a paradox with something that he feels must be done. And so he's tense the whole, you can just feel it kind of like his whole body is like so tense. Um, He doesn't, it's such a, yeah, it's such like a layered performance. Like there's so much, uh, like kind of like so, so subtle and so layered. And I feel like we don't say that about Christopher Walken a lot. Exactly. You know, he, he can do big and he can do mean. That's what I was going to say. He doesn't overwalk in it at all. Um, it's almost incidental that it's Christopher Walken somehow. I also don't know who did his wardrobe or his hair, but the hair uh, does a lot of heavy actually incredible. He looks like a really hot lesbian to me. If there's the most (laughs) of this movie, I mean, that is like a hundred percent, not a joke. (laughs) Like, No, I'm with you. Yeah. They well, the costuming was like really deliberate. I guess they um, they were talking about how um, I guess with even the jacket, they you know would try to keep him. Um, they they kind of had to like give him a little bit of a, a vampiric look when he, they they would put the things up to kind of like mm. show that he's aware and like you know in that scene <laughs> where he's trying to um, you know convince the father that you know to you know not have his kid die. Um, the you know the what is it? God damn what the, the, you know, the jacket sleeve is up and it's almost like that kind of gives him a little bit even more of a stature uh, yeah. to it. That kind of goes with his hair. He's also his just, look he's kind of great. slight, like he's a slight man in this. I mean, that yeah. part of that is like the character and, but like looking at him when he stands against other people, you're like, Oh yeah. Like, yes, he has the cane, but it's also just his whole silhouette. Like he could kind of be blown over by a slight breeze. Right. He and looks he is. Frail. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like when he has a vision in the, the gazebo, like he literally falls and his like legs go all the way up. Like I noticed before I was like, Jesus, do you almost like break his jaw on the fucking gazebo? Like he, he literally, he literally almost looks like he's breakdancing at one point. Um, Mike, you mentioned his smile in the, in, in your notes here. And I, that was something too, to me is the way he deploys his smile in this is, is so affecting. There's a line when he says, uh, he's talking to Wyzak, I believe. And he says, you mean I'm going to die? Like, uh, when they're talking and it's such like, he's serious. He's really asking that question and he knows the answer to it. And when he delivers it, the tiniest little smile on his face. And it's such like a deliberate choice that is, um, very fitting with the character and that sense of, I think, resignation and, uh, resentment that built up in him he's like of course i'm gonna die like this has ruined everything else in me you know what i mean and um and yeah that's where i think and i agree with you mel like the vulnerability there is so stark and like he has a line where he says something about like um about home in a way i can't remember the exact context but he the way he delivers it is so utterly heartbreaking and uh and yeah, and I think that combination of the vulnerability mixed in with like the anger that he he unloads on that reporter um, mm-hmm. is, I love that is scene. so sharp and intense, and like uh, you can see the intensity there in that in that perfect way. It's such a good scene, and so yeah, I'm I'm glad he leaned into it because it makes him a little bit quote unquote unlikable, right? Like you know, but it's completely justified. Uh, like he's not a cuddly character, uh, you know. When he comes back, he is pissed off and he has right. every right to be you know king yeah. does this a lot and and you know of course eventually he would experience this process for himself when he was hit by a car many of his characters go through something physically debilitating and he's very faithful about depicting the anger of it yeah, yeah. the resentment because when your body stops doing what you want it to do it's it's 
so elementally infuriatingly frustrating. Yeah. There's there is nothing more frightening and alienating than just losing capabilities. Yeah. Yeah, we just did Dreamcatcher, the book and and the movie, and it's all over that one. Because yeah. that was the first book he wrote after the accident. Yeah. Yep. And it's I remember just... the original title for that was Cancer. Yeah. 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 But he he does he does do the the sort of acceptance of his fate in such an, an interesting way. Like he has that sort of gallows humor to it. Like, you know, God's been a real sport to me. Like, I, I just, <laughs> I love the way that, that that's all that's delivered. Even when he's talking about like, call it a coma diet, you know, lose weight in your sleep. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah just, that made me laugh. It's just like, there's just some really great sort of like, yeah, this is my lot, you know? Great and, bleak jokes. Right. And I, and I think that that really adds to this sort of, I don't know, the reality of the situation without have, having to be like, again, like I keep using the word maudlin, but like this could skew into maudlin territory so, so easily. And it yeah. doesn't like, I'll just say know. like the other line that really struck me was when I believe Sarah says like, Oh, Johnny, why did it have to happen like this? And he doesn't even want to engage with her on that emotional level. He just says bad luck. And he says it so bluntly it's where he's so just good. like, I am not going to engage on the, like how sorry I feel for myself. I'm not going to go there right now. It's bad fucking luck, you know? Yeah. And uh, that to me was a very strong choice um, yep. because you okay. could say bad luck with the, with all this, all that, like the tears on the, um, on the verge of it. And he refuses to go there. It's just simply, yeah. he's like, I'm not going to go there. Right. He so. even physically turns away from her when he yep. says it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there are a lot of like really interesting, subtle things that, that Cronenberg does. And maybe it's not so subtle in hindsight, but at the time I thought it was, was you know, the fact that he keeps wanting to hear the Raven, you know, which is, you know, all about this, like the longing of Lenore, you right. know, and he keeps having, and then what happens in that scene? Oh, Sarah arrives. And then there's that, that wonderful moment that you talked about earlier, Gretchen, where like he, he's crying, you know, he cries into Chris's arms and all, and all of that just, really captures the sort of um depth of the the misery at hand um without overstating it and i and i and i think it's you know because that's what we would do we would subconsciously be like oh i want to hear that oh I w-. it's the way that same way right. that we would want to hear the song over and over again even though it fucking depresses us <laughs> but, and you um, know coincidentally he is the lenore figure mm-hmm. in the fiction of the film not her yeah yeah he's the one who slept the sleep of death mm-hmm. yeah so it's it's really sort of a way to meditate on both halves of his loss. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, some really interesting choices on set. Uh, I guess um, <laughs> I, I think Christopher Walken asked uh, to fi- like asked to fire a forty-five Magnum pistol without telling him, so that when he did the scenes when he's jolting, um, he, it would actually be a real reaction. That's so um, cool. Yeah. So Cronenberg said, yeah, Cronenberg says, uh, I spent a lot of the movie with a gun in my hand. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Never would happen today. There's no way that would happen today. Well, uh, you say that. Yeah. I know. Well, that's true. Yeah. Well, it did Alec happen Baldwin. Today in a very different way. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts on, uh, on Walken? I mean, I know we'll probably keep talking about him as we keep talking yeah, about other characters. Yeah, he's but interwoven he's great. Also, yeah. But it is a nice segue into... Um, Oh God, Brooke Adams. Yes, because I think in the same way that we've been talking about how he like underplays is not the right word. Like she could be this total Mary Sue like type of character where you're just like, she's just there to kind of like be the woman he lost and like look pretty. But there is something so genuinely endearing and like honest about her portrayal of this character that I believe that she is a person with this other life and her own 
concerns and that, yeah, we're only getting the glimpse of her that is into Johnny in these moments. And she's intentionally throwing herself back into that nostalgia. And it's just infectiously lights her up in this way. And I think she does a great job. I was really, Sarah's a hard character. I Mm -hmm. like that's a hard character to get right. To make that performance work both on a, a craft level and on a script level is really tough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some really interesting, interesting work in there. She is always the initiator and, and metaphorical aggressor in their sexual connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She yeah. wants to have sex with him in the beginning and he puts her off because he's going to marry her. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's the one who initiates their one night stand as sort of a, a after the fact consummation. And Brooke Adams is so good. She's got that like, Agreed. she's got yeah. that little gap in her teeth mm-hmm. that coincidentally mimics walk-ins. Yeah. She's like mature. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. doesn't, she doesn't look like a, a matinee idol. I think that's so important. It's, it's, it's... Me too. She's got to have wrinkles. Like yeah. Yeah. time has passed and we need to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I always love Brooke Adams and everything I've seen her in. And uh, it's a shame that kind of her career tapered off a little bit. A little bit, yeah. I mean, she she got she married Tony Shalhoub, so she's you know the, she's it's lived fun. a great fun <laughs> great life. Shalhoub's great. Um, I hear they're deeply in love. Like, they're deeply in love. So yeah, cute. love to hear it. Love yeah. to hear it. But he, she, you know, she did have a great. Uh, I mean, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that '78 versions. I think it was one oh, of the, so good. the great. I mean, one of the greatest about, movies of all time. Oh, it's so yeah. good, and she's great in that too. In the same way, like Days of it, Heaven, it's very understated. Like, I, yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting here is that they had actually had a built-in history. Um, she had done a play with Walken uh, called The Flanderer, and uh, he had actually asked for Adams for this role. Nice. Um, and they had known each other, I guess, growing up. Um, because there's a, I guess she knew him as Ronnie Walken, which uh, I guess they were a family of bakers, apparently. So I just imagine like a bunch of wa- like Christopher Walkens, and you know, it's like it's the bread done, <laughs> you know, like, like <laughs> it's just. Um, so I, I just think that I think that really is important when you're making a movie. It doesn't always work, but like when you do have that sort of shared history, it, it there's there is some magic there that kind of does a lot of the you know a lot totally. of walking too. We keep talking you know? about teeth and smiles and i think hers is like really essential to the film too. yeah every time it's she so open it's so yeah. good and, but it's also like she is there kind of like despite herself like she can't help but like give this like glowing it's like with her the full force of like the emotions that she knows she should be kind of tampering down as she spends time with him but she can't because he's johnny and like oh uh, yeah. it's just it's just so good him. uh yeah yeah. Well, let's let's talk. You know, we've we've talked about two uh, uh, fairly um, indecipherable figures. Uh, I would say in, in 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 Hollywood history, if you really want to get down to it. Because, and I'm borrowing from Brooke Adams. She called uh, Walken indecipherable, and I agree. Um, but I think we could all agree that Tom Skerritt is just uh, a classic Hollywood hunk. One hundred percent. You know, love him. I, I, I think he. It's weird because I was looking through his filmography. And it feels like Skerritt's like the best looking actor who never really took off as a leading man. Like I was looking at all his filmography. He's never really had like a, he, I mean, he's, you know, he's had roles that are, you know, front and center sometimes, but not really. And especially with his looks and his style and his, his acting, I just would have considered him like be like almost like a Roger Redford. And he never get, he never his got sexuality it. is his, like the sexual energy that he projects yeah. is too butch for the, t- the period where he becomes prominent in acting. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. That's true. Yeah. It's you know, you're you're going into the era of the chiseled pretty boy. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. I, I love him here. see him as the sort of like bureaucratic villain of contact, which is definitely yes. a movie that I've <laughs> watched more than anything else that he's been in. So uh, it, it's it's weird for me to see him in the sort of like gener- the benevolent sheriff in, in this role. One of the um, one of the great unrecorded uh, Losers Club pods. Uh, yeah, someone someone contact requests chat. contact for the crate, and it'll just be a yeah. one woman show. I'll I'll do four <laughs> hours on contact. I don't care. Uh, yeah, uh, Scarrett's Yeah, Scarrett's great, and he's. It is kind of a far cry from the Bannerman of the book. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, presented as as kind of unkempt and uh, and. Uh, you know, not handsome, I guess. Like, no, the first uh, time we meet him, he's like eating chili in a diner. Yeah. And, and King and, uh, spends most of the time talking about, I guess, his belt or something like that. Yeah. Well, like, he, yeah, King loves to do that. But it's, uh, but it's, but I, I love this version of the character. I, I think this is the only Bannerman we, we really, I mean, no, I guess in Cujo. Maybe Cujo we do. Cujo? Uh, some, uh, one that, uh, an actor that definitely looks more like the, the Bannerman that we see in the books. Like sure. who, you know, there definitely isn't like, you know, top 20, sexiest hollywood you know history <laughs> leading man yeah, yeah exactly. i i really love him in this and you know he's and yeah and like mike you bring up the idea of um of if the dodd situation is a blemish on his career in castle rock and that's actually a funny question just as somebody who's you know read all these books because they talk about dodd uh all the time in castle rock in the later books they love to reference the serial killer right mm-hmm. the guy who you know and um but they never actually do really mention like the fallout of that the fact that you know a deputy within the police department was also a serial killer and uh but i do love the way this whole story plays out and and um you know later i'll talk about the scissors but yeah it's uh but yeah scared is great i mean i just love watching him in any he's a part he's part and parcel with the earnestness of the film like he's just so yeah. earnestly flummoxed by these murders and like yeah it, it hits him because he's like a small town guy and like of course it's like the person closest to you this whole time but it's he's so he's, great where he's just like yeah i'm not good enough at my job to solve this yeah. like and we, be- we believe that he would go to a psychic even though other people are like really <laughs> but yeah. he's just so he's like what what else is there i'm so confused right how am i, I supposed yeah. to not use every tool at my disposal yeah i always love that trope whenever they bring it in uh any kind of cop story the you know all right we got to go to the psychic yeah right which <laughs> I mean, happened. We talked about it in, uh, in one of our past Souls Midnights about how this yeah. has happened like nonstop throughout history. Oh, police consult psychics like way more than people know still. I, I it's feel. so wild. Like some so of them have been really close. I mean, go listen to our Souls Midnight episode if you haven't uh, on, on our Patreon. It's pretty wild. It's uh, a lot of accounts and we we try to see if we can debunk them. But um, anyway, if we're talking <laughs> about- great. We're, Scarrett's great. Is the love Scarrett. <laughs> yeah. Love Scarrett. And uh, love him in uh, Dallas, uh, the, the would-be- Oh, man leading star in that movie but not, not so much uh no, no spoilers for the 1979 <laughs> alien uh let's talk about nicholas campbell as dodd um funny enough nicholas campbell uh was uh cronenberg's choice to play johnny initially and uh oh interesting yeah dino was like no deal um no deal so, yeah it's like it's not oh the guy that 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 plays a a cameo role in the brood you're gonna has the leading man here i don't think it's gonna happen um with the, I, I think he's perfect as Dodd here because he has that boyish look. I was just gonna say boyish. And those yeah. eyes are so icy and creepy. Like that the scene when they're in the tunnel and he's just kind of sitting there behind his in like tucked away in his jacket. Like there's something so haunting about that image, especially when you know it's him. Um I don't know. I, I think he's, he's really a little uh, boy in a man's body, and that is not it's not not 
evocative of childhood innocence, but that does not make it more comforting. <laughs> no. Yeah, so creepy. I I did wonder if you're Dodd, at like what point are you like, all right, I'm I'm out of here. I'm gonna pack. I'm packing my car. I'm filling it up. Like I'm hitting Castle Rock. I, I'm I'm thinking like I don't go to the gazebo if I'm Dodd. You know, I'm like, he hey, believe, I actually- he doesn't believe in Johnny at all. Like he is like. This is no way. This will only put them farther off my ascent, you know? Like I guess that naivete like kind of fuels into the feeds into like the boyish sort of uh you know feeling of him of like to yeah. not actually go, oh wait, this guy, his track record's pretty good. Uh he's coming to town, like I should probably be wary of this guy. <laughs> he like, would also <laughs> He would never leave his mother. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do we think of his mother? Uh, Colleen Dew, uh, Dewhurst is Henrietta Dodd. I think the pair here, um, I, I think they're a psychological nightmare together. <laughs> I think it's, they're perfect. I, I wish they... we, I wish we saw a little of them interacting. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's great. Mm-hmm. She's so good. She's well, you like know, yeah. the oh, Dale Dickey of her day. You know, she can sell this sort of ravaged older woman so easily. Yeah, I'll say, like, when I think back on the book and the the things that still that I remember hitting hard for me when I read it when I was like 12 or 13, like uh, it was the safety pin like on his mm-hmm. uh, penis, like in the book, it's detailed how she would make him do that. And uh, it's so funny because I thought that actually was mentioned in the movie because it had burned so deeply into my mind, but it's not. But so, yeah, I wish we could have gotten a little more context of like the the bizarre, strange, um, you know, sort of damaging nature of that relationship. There's a lot of there's a lot of clues in the context, you know, like just looking at his room, looking at the house, the house. looking at. Yeah, and her, just the way she carries herself, and um, like you say that Cronenberg compared her to a gorgon or something protecting the monster, and I love that. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think that there's, you know, a lot of ickiness um, to be read in the the way the house is shot. Oh, and yeah, you really don't need all that other stuff. She, but I she will packs say, it's years like, yeah. into like, yeah, the very few minutes of screen yeah. time she has when Cronenberg, or sorry, when Walken is like, uh, you knew, like. Mm-hmm. she's automatically um the look that she gives him is like so defensive it's yeah. Yeah. it's like um like how dare you like come into uh, come into my property and like say that to me instead of instead of like being scared that she's been found out or anything it's, it's great oh so good yeah cronenberg yeah, likened her as like a gorgon like uh the like a guardian of um Almost like I can't think of the guardian of a dragon, but like I keep thinking of like the Rancor Keeper or something like that, <laughs> uh, like in Return of the Jedi. Um, same year, by the way. How about how about that? Eighty three. Um, what do we think about the change from Dodd just kind of slitting his throat to um, I'm going to throw my <laughs> mouth into this this the this this uh the scissors? Because in the book he just he, he slits his throat, which would be the easier thing to do if I'm a serial killer. And I'm going to be caught. I'm probably just going to slice my my throat or do something else. I don't know if I'm going to throw my head or my mouth into scissors. Like it's an interesting choice. <laughs> I it's, love it though. It's, yeah, it's it so. Oh, it's yeah. totally I mean, rules. how many throats have we seen cut? Show us that new. <laughs> how how does he when die though? The... Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you still be alive during that? Wouldn't you? Like I mean, not just... if you got it up through your palate and into your. That's true. Oh God! <laughs> uh, the version of the book I had when I was a kid was the movie version. It was the uh, so it had production photos in it. And when I first read it, I had not you know seen the movie. So I was I would look at the photos all the time. And the photo of the scissors and Dodd um, his body over the scissors is it was in the book, and I found it so 
shocking and, and disgusting. And then when I read the scene, I was like, where's the scissors? I kept like, where are the scissors in the book? Because, uh, yeah, they don't like establish that that's just a movie. Mike thing, is like, like touching the version. inside of his. I was. Well, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand how, uh, and it do, it would, it would have to be such a perfect, like, but it's, and it's then staged, yeah, but it's, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's, it's deliberately, just so cool. He, yeah. he just yeah. knows what he wants to do. He's going to set up the scene. It's, Oh, just think about like the the fucking blade is hitting your tooth. <laughs> You're too it's caught gross. up in the practicalities of this. Well, yeah, no, the, no, no, no. I, I think cool it's great. Thing. I think it, it gets under your fucking skin. It does. <laughs> yes, it's, it does. It's certainly Cronenberg. But I also um, think that scissors are a more potent psychosexual object in the yeah. context of childhood and parenting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you have this quote here, Mike. Somehow I arrived at using scissors or barber scissors. It just seemed eccentric. Every murder is unique, and I didn't want to play him as a modular murder. I wanted to get into the significance of the scissors to him. Yeah. Uh, and you wrote, he connected the scissors to his mother in a psychological approach, and it's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. It works. It works for sure. Um, let's talk about another uh, family dynamic, which is uh, uh, Roger Stewart and Chris Stewart, uh, the great Anthony Zerb, uh, Zerby. Um, I know him. What do I know him from? He he's been he's been in a couple of things. I know he was in um he's in like the Matrix sequels. Um, oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I mean he's been in far more than that. I probably should have done more justice in thinking about the Matrix sequels, I guess. But I like the Matrix sequels. What, what, what can I say? But um, yeah, he was in uh, he was actually in the 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 Omega Man, Richard Matheson. Uh, some some King connection there. Uh, he was oh yeah, he's the villain in uh, License to Kill later on that year. Oh, so um, or not that year, but. Later on in that decade, um, I guess. But yeah, um, from Long Beach, California. So not even a Canadian guy. But um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think this this episode. There's not much really to talk about this. I I I think there. What I like about this situation and this episode is that it would have been easier to make Roger this like incredibly despicable father. But there's some pathos in there. Like the fact that he goes, he's he's a he's he sees through Stilson is really important. And I think that's like kind of a pointed um, narrative beat to be like- He sees through him, but takes no real stance of opposition to exactly. him. Exactly. Which yeah. is an important foil to Johnny. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's just like, well, I, I'm, he's looking out for himself. He doesn't mm-hmm. care about- Right. Like, that's, the world. that's the world. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I mean, they, it just sums up all like rich people politics. It's like, I don't take a stance because, you know, this person could potentially help me later. So- yeah. And that shot- that's very Rockwellian also is when, when, you know, they get the message and he's just kind of sitting there watching the television. It's fucking great. Again with the television. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just blaring misery that he's already experienced. Uh, yeah. And, and I, and I love, um, I actually think the kid's pretty great in this. The kid is really great. That shot. Yeah, there's, a, there's a long lineage of bad kid actors in, in King adaptations, so it was nice to see this one. Yeah. Good well, who's the worst actor, one for bad you? haircut, uh, but Cole, very fitting. Cortland Mead in the Shining yeah. miniseries. I knew it. I, knew it. I was totally leading you on that one. Um, <laughs> that shot, though, some great storytelling, too. Again, like when the dad's standing there and you see that 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 wonderful shot with uh, the, the, I think it's the flamenco playing with the... Um, uh, came and score and the dad's just watching Johnny and Chris standing outside. It's like, it's such good. It's just such a gorgeous portrait. Like, just, and again, very Rockwell. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this episode leads to the big event and, uh, we got to talk about a Martin Sheen as Greg Stilson. Um, <laughs> I, I, incredible performance. Uh, incredible. And I like this quote from Cronenberg. He says, I will defend that 
is not being over the top, not being mm-hmm. a caricature or a cartoon, but being accurate in the way politicians present themselves. Unfortunately, he is not a cartoon. He is very real. I 100%. think after, I think we all agree after the, yeah. <laughs> the last six or seven <laughs> years, especially. Um, I don't think we need more Stilson, but I'm no. sure King fans think we might. No, you the know. vagueness is so important. Like the vagueness of what he is actually pitching. Like, and but we know that he's got these people fired up, including Sarah, who we who we like. We we know that she is. Yeah, if that's not important. I think, yeah. but likable, and and Johnny loves her, and so it's important that we that he be this unifying figure with this vaguely threatening undertone. Um, but I love that we never get into like, here's exactly what I want for the country, or like, here's like, what is what does he say? Like, I can't even remember now. Like, he's just like, well, he's like I'm he's gonna, like a workers' rights guy. Yeah, he's just like, I'm yeah. gonna help yeah. you, gonna get you what you want. But there's nothing, no specific promises made, no specific yeah. groups mentioned. Yeah, it's like empty calories, basically, um, that he's putting out there. But he knows and- how to. He knows how to work up a yeah. crowd. He yeah. knows how to, you know, put on a hard hat and do everything. I always, when I was watching it, I was thinking about Trump when he was at uh, Liberty University, and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, what my favorite book is? He's like, besides Art of the Deal, the Bible, and everybody's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's that besides easy. Art like, of the Deal, what an asshole. Know? What an incredible. Yeah. Uh, say what you will about the horrible fucking rapist monster. At least he was funny to watch on TV. I know he man. was like yeah. the laughs are were unparalleled, but yeah. yeah, it's like, um, yeah. So anyways, I love Sheen in this. It's, it is prescient in its own way. Like, and you know, King talked about that when Trump was in office and people were making the comparisons. Um, but you know, still seems still ve- in many ways, very different, um, than somebody like Trump, you know, although I will say like when he has this Sonny with him, I uh, like, you know, his thug. Oh, it he's reminded creepy. Me of, I love. Well, Sonny. Yeah, I yeah. love the casting. Yeah. I, but I, I thought a lot about like some of the the thugs who were sort of outed during the Trump years, like mm-hmm. like this guy, Matthew Calamari. Like it, this guy was like a former bodyguard who became like one of Trump's right hands. Like Trump loved the big tough guys, yeah. you know, he and and I think for those kind of reasons, they could intimidate people. And even, um, even his so, bodyguard gets disgusted with Stilson. Yes. <laughs> Moment. Look, yeah. Such a good moment. Yeah. When he's like, he sees the situation, he's like, I'm good. It's over. It's over. There's, <laughs> I, I can't the clean this up. At, yeah. Yeah. Using the kid as a shield. It's um, over. Also, when uh, we see Stilson launch the, the missiles, like the just the pure kind of obliterated mind that would be like, what's important to me is that the missile, like, I just want people to die. I have absolutely no kind of moral that is married to this that is more specific than like i want to hit the button and make people die everyone around him including all the other politicians that in real life would be like oh you know he got away and they're all like horrified because this man has made this decision uh just just kind of love the blatant like we're gonna go to this he is just the the er politician he just wants to press right. the button like right uh, yeah. and he's he's so prescient in terms of of george bush jr oh god yes yeah the the man who actually did start a war for inscrutable greedy reasons mm-hmm. yeah um, there, yeah the, the it, it it is the that sort of ego of wanting to be in the history books right he's he's hollow he has nothing but desire yeah 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 i yeah the, and you oh go for it go for it i was just gonna say i 
it's I, I do enjoy seeing this side of King. You know, obviously it was a long time ago, but he was, you know, he was very anti-war and very far left uh, in his college years in the late 60s and early 70s. And and the paranoia, I think he felt towards the government, you know, the kind of thing that stirred up a lot of people in the 60s, JFK, RFK, uh, MK Ultra, all those things. And those permeate his work in that in that early stuff, that distrust of government. And uh, we just talked about that in our most recent Souls Midnight episode and that evolution of that King has gone through where now he's very much a uh, blue and on uh, yeah. boomer on Twitter. Absolutely. And it's, and it's wild to see, you know, to see um, how paranoid he used to be about government. And then you read um, Billy Summers and Gwendy's final task, which are good books. We like them, but like, he's just so like Republicans are bad. Democrats are good. You know, yeah. he has yeah. very much just cemented himself in that. Well, he's, he's become wealthy and, yeah. and fuller and he's, he's yeah. lost his connection to the world. Yeah, the Dead Zone comes out right at the tail end of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and during Reagan's ascent to power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very it's, hard it's, not to see Reagan and still say. Oh yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's very prescient in that way for sure. I mean, in, in I guess Douglas Winter, who was historian for King, um, before uh, Bev Vincent. He said that I guess the name was supposed to be a combo of like Still and Nixon, you know, like the the, the kind of I guess this I don't know anyway. But um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot of uh, that sort of political angst that we don't really get from anymore. I, I will say one of the things that I think is funny is like a, just a little short trivia that's with uh, Martin Sheen. So when he says, you know, um, I'll cut your hand off and I'll put it on the the thing itself. Um, you know, to the guy when they're at Camp David. So in an original draft, he actually, they were going to show him like hacking the guy, dead guy's <laughs> hand off and put on the thing. And so I guess what they realized is that Sheen had read it and he, I guess, had really taken it to heart. And so he put that on and it was improv on the set, like that that last line with him, like, I'll hack it up my, you know, your arm off myself and put it on there. Um, which is great. I thought you I mean, were gonna say when he he when he really took it to heart, he started cutting off people's hands. Yeah, that's what I was like. No, Martin, no. This is for Carlos. Um, it's so I'm amazing. a method actor. It's yeah. so fucking amazing that Martin Sheen goes on to be America's nice yep. cuddly daddy as President Bartlett on this fucking West Wing. I know. Yeah. It's it's crazy. Like incredible. And I it, and I and I it's because I, I feel like there's so much distance. Like if that had come out. If this had come out in like 92 or 93, I don't know if if uh, Sorkin would have been able to convince anyone to be like, all right, you know, I know he's charismatic here, um, <laughs> but uh, let's get the guy that, you know, is going to cause nuclear annihilation. <laughs> right. And he used a baby as a human shield. Yeah. Yeah. Which, oh, um, but like, what do we make of the, the change of it being um, Sarah's baby at the end? Um, and you know, that's fine with me. I think it's just, I think it's just tightening the narrative a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I I don't feel strongly about it either way. Okay. Cool. 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 Do we think that would ruin a politician today? (laughs) I'm not a hundred percent sure that it would. I know. And that's what I was thinking. I was like, would it ruin any, I don't know if it would. If it happened on camera. Yeah. yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Even then, you can spin it. You can be like, yeah. "I was turning around to use my own back as the shield." And right, yeah. exactly. You just lie, and everyone's like, "Ah, blah blah blah." Suddenly, <laughs> they have let's... to make it so clear that he is doing it like with full intent. Like he's like picking up the baby, like ah. Yeah, and... yeah. 
Uh, well, it is yeah. funny. In um in the book, I remember they center on the POV of the photographer for they a while do. because that's the thing is in in that in back then, you know, if it there was no photo of it happening, it wouldn't take off in the same way. No. You know, it would they like for it to be on the cover of Newsweek or whatever. It's like that photo was so integral to capturing it. Now it's like everybody would be filming. Oh yeah, you know? yeah. but then still they would find some ways. <laughs> it, so it's yeah, it's absurd. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I should, think should that- we? real things that happen don't don't actually matter anymore politically yeah, exactly. they don't yeah which is sad it's a uh, you might want to call it a nightmare um so <laughs> that leads Good us to our way. next section uh nightmares and dreamscapes if you think your dreams are disturbing <laughs> imagine the nightmares of stephen king what are you some sort of a horror movie guy no Clyde, i'm a literary guy uh, okay, for our next few sections, they're basically speed rounds for the most part. Uh, with Nightmares and Dreamscapes, uh, we're going to go around and each share one thing we loved and then go around again and digress on maybe any grievances we have. Randall, what is one yeah. thing you loved? One thing you uh, loved. Something that we haven't talked about yet that I really love is... Um, hold on, I'm cycling through my notes here. Well, I think it's like... Uh, Actually, I think I said most of the stuff. I guess I'll just play up the, because I didn't talk about it much, is the scene with the reporter mm-hmm. um, where, you know, he kind of, like, you know, that the, I think, because I think that's the first moment we really see the manifestation of his rage mm-hmm. and uh, the way that that, um, you know, he's been in this hospital bed, he's been cooped up, and then they put these cameras in front of him. And then you've got this guy who's essentially trolling him and fucking with him and trying to turn him into a headline. And it's this like grasp at humanity and this grasp at dignity uh, that I think he's been lacking. And so I don't know, I, I love that scene because it really feels like the first time we see Walken um, kind of manifest as this new changed person um, who can be dangerous. Like, I think seeing that danger there is great. Um, yeah. And then do you want me to share something now that I didn't like? Yeah, or? let's just do it all in one. For, I'll just we'll say issue what we love, what we didn't love. Yeah. Well, I think grievance is a good word for it. Cause I think my grievance is, is a little unfair because it's not in the movie, but one of my favorite scenes from the book that I think uh, gives such a, a portentous and, and um, uh, you know, uh, sense of dread is the fortune teller at the circus yeah, that, um, yeah. that we get in the book. It's such a chilling sort of moment and scene that serves as this really great sort of harbinger for what's to come. And uh, I don't know, like, I love how tight this movie is, but I wish like, and it would have given us a little bit more time with him and Sarah early on, which I think mm-hmm. I don't need a lot more, but just a little bit more could have been cool. So I just wish that scene was in it. Cause I think it's, um, one of King's better parts in that book. Yeah. You could have gotten some fall foliage in there too. You know, uh, see him walking around the, the amusement park and all could have been Love nice. It. Be like, Hey, are you okay from after the, you know, the roller coaster? Um, <laughs> let, let's go to this. Uh, Gretchen, what did you love? What did you hate? I think that my favorite part of the movie is, um, can you, can you remind me of the doctor's name? Oh, Wyzak. Well, which we Wyzak. didn't even, t- we didn't even talk about. He's I feel great. so bad. We didn't. Yeah. He's great in that. Yeah. He's amazing. My favorite part of the movie is when Wyzak says he would kill Hitler. Yeah. I think that like to see this man who is so compassionate, who is so deeply invested in the idea that he is responsible for people's healing, that he has an obligation to knit injuries and mend wounds, both physical and psychological. And then he says, with all that taken into account, I would kill the son of a bitch. Like, it's such a beautiful moment. There's, there's nothing equivocating 
about the moral choice presented in this movie. They're like, mm-hmm. there's an unquestionable good thing to do here. And it is to spend your own life to murder someone who will do horrible, horrible things, which I think is, is really ahead of its time for political discourse in that yeah. we are now living in an era where we can't even agree if become... someone should be punched. <laughs> right. Like where, where civility has become this sort of hunter's blind that people can pop in and out of. Yeah. And where really the only chance of any kind of structural change is armed revolution. Yeah. 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 The great Couldn't Herbert more. The great Herbert Lom, by the way, just had to you know throw his name out there. Hell of a voice. Um and uh, we didn't get to talk about him before, but yeah, I, th- I think Wyzak is great in this. Um, any I would gre- say my least favorite part is uh, the intimidation scene in the, the newspaper office. Yeah. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I think it's it just sort of by the numbers. It doesn't bring the movie down, but it doesn't elevate it either. Yeah, yeah. it's so it's it's so unessential. And, and you know, to Mel's point before, it does break the point of view. So it's like it. Right you could excise that out. And I guess maybe did they feel they needed that just because of the ending with the photo? I, I, I did try to kind of wrap my head around why they kept that scene in there. It's, it's so unnecessary. Um, I, I, I actually, now in hindsight, I do know because I guess Cronenberg was worried. And this kind of goes into what John Batham was talking about with, I guess the quote unquote irresponsibleness of this narrative. I guess they really did want to stress that the, the, the viewer had to be in the point of view of Johnny and that we had to see that this is going to be a bad guy that needed to be taken out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably why, but I think you can do it without it. I don't, I, I don't, I think we already see enough. I think the vision of him is enough. For yeah. Us. I, I think if we only have Johnny's vision, that's fine. Yeah. yeah that's all we need. I agree. Uh, Mel, what's your, uh, what's your nightmare? What's your dream or vice versa? <laughs> My dream is there are just a couple, I think I would classify them as Cronenbergy touches there are three that i'll just rattle off one milk truck truck full of milk yeah love it uh he's gonna uh, he's gonna hit a truck full of milk <laughs> it's almost it's like ridley so scott good. was like make it full of milk because he just milk. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, two uh, uh the clinic the clinic is so fucking weird the clinic mm-hmm. is like he's the only guy there he's got this doctor yeah. and nurse on call it, it's just given me like weird cronenberg vibes this like beautiful isolated clinic Three, the moment when his mom is like, she she cleaves unto another man. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, yes. I, I wish I brought up the mother. I love uh, the line when she goes, five years and now reborn unto me. Amazing. Yeah. Like, just these little, they're not absurdist, but they're, they're some, there's something weird about them. There's something surreal about them. There's something. It's it, a little bit like uh, Piper, Laurie, and Carrie. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because uh, Cronenberg even talks menacing. about that. Yeah, not he talks menacing, about how he's like very earnest. <laughs> she, she is cleaving unto another man. We're gonna <laughs> and we're gonna say it like that. Um, and and even like the dad just like did you have to bring that yeah. up? Like you, like that's a facial expression. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, my grievance would also probably just be that that intimidation scene. But I guess I have to be like so nitpicky. There are moments like when he's describing the vision in the gazebo or when he's getting jolted where I'm like, just shave off like five seconds. Like it's just going, it's just going on like a titch, like a titch too long. <laughs> like, yeah. um, but that's neither here nor there. That's also just, that's also just of a, a time, like when the movie was made and I can't really fault it for that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, I, lo- I didn't talk about it much, but that crisp opening mm-hmm. with the, the port, it kind of hammers down the Rock William portraits there. And I love the way that, even though it has the, the minimalistic, I think it's almost like a, a scaled down Futura font, but like it says Dead Zone, but the fact that we get it kind of cut through with those portraits, and then they even have that sort of happenstance for- photo of like the guy in like the, the, or someone in a trench coat that's walking down the, the the highway, which is so creepy. Like I know that happened coincidentally, but like I just I always imagine that's Dodd like walking around the countryside before we get there. Um, just sets up the movie so well, and you really get the sense of where this is going and where you are going. Um, you know, visually, mentally, and, and, and literally in the movie. Um, so I just love that opening, and uh, the score at that point is awesome. And honestly, yeah, the intimidation scene is really the only thing I can think of, and because it, it does feel like kind of like a, a weird hiccup. But even then, it's just. I get some more time with my boy Sonny, and uh, so you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm okay in, in that way. I love one of my I talked about this in the Shining episode, but I love when you have the the sort of silent bully. Um, I love henchmen. Henchmen, yeah. that's what I mean. Yeah, and he kind of reminds me of um, the guy that works with Ullman in uh, Kubrick's The Shining that just sits there next to. Uh, oh yeah, I love that. To, character. And I, I just love those characters. It's a very that's a very Kubrickian style guy. This is a little more. He actually talks, so um, that's a little different. But anyway, he gives me the chills. And, and what, what other place gives me the chills is a little place we call the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. This one's simple. What scared us? Uh, Randall, what, what what keeps you up at night watching the Death Zone? Scissors. Um, it's so, I find it like genuinely wretch-inducing, the, that death scene. Um the way it's staged, the the kind of like intricacy with with it with which it's staged, like the idea that Dot has been considering this, like mm-hmm. uh this sort of elaborate form of suicide and what that kind of means for his own mental state and mm-hmm. the performative nature of it. Uh he was very concerned, obviously, with sort of the tableau of his death. And that to me is unnerving in its own way. Um, and then uh you have this in your notes, Mike, and I totally agree. Waking up and it's been five years. Yeah. You know, that to me is is um, I've, I'm always unnerved by the passing of time, uh, when you're not aware of it. Like I've never in my life blacked out. Um, and I'm, I'd be terrified too. like the idea of not remembering portions of your life is very, very scary to me. Totally. It's um, dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like, uh, five years, you know, just laying in a bed, knowing everything around you has changed is my worst nightmare. Tons, tons. Gretchen. The scariest thing in this movie for me is his vision of the kids falling through the ice, Mm. um, which happened to me when I was younger. Oh, really? I fell through the ice in a pond in the woods. And really, it was just luck that I was close enough to get home without getting like severely frostbitten. Oh, wow. wow. That's so scary. It was really scary. Um, And I think the fact that we start under the ice that... Johnny's perspective is already like among the dead and the doomed. It's it's just a really stressful, painful image. Yeah, yeah. That's oh gosh. Did you so wait, did you like did you have to crawl out of the ice like when you're yeah. oh wow Jesus, that's fucking terrifying. Um, 
Yeah. Oof. Mel, what about you? Um, hard to agree with everything that has been said. I think there's a moment that um, the doctor says, uh, you know, I'm not going to kind of sugarcoat it. We're going to try and get you walking in, but it is going to hurt so much. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be so painful. Um, and yeah. yeah, that would, that might, that alone might, uh, you know, break me if I was in that situation. Um, yeah. And I think also seeing Sarah work for Stilson, like from Johnny's oh, yeah. perspective, um, yeah. that's like, damn. <laughs> And I, we, we've probably all had a similar experience where you're like, oh, a friend thinks that or like supports that person. It's very frightening. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. It, it made me wonder on, on multiple rewatches. I was just kind of like, maybe this is the point when Johnny could be like, look at this guy. You know, <laughs> you're with this, you know, your husband is clearly real gung ho on this. He's probably the one that nuts Stilson or something like that, maybe. And I was like, hey, you know, why don't we go on this campaign trail? Um, Maybe this is the point you you know you get out of this relationship, <laughs> live with me over in this new house that I got, and you know I'm tutoring. Things are going or, all right. I mean, if if you're gonna think about Sarah as a, a party with equal agency in this political equation, it yeah. tells you something really ugly about her. I know. I just don't want to think that. I I I just want like I just a lot I, of people <laughs> who are wonderful to be around are terrible fucking people. Because the only thing that matters to them is like niceness. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. Yep. Yeah. I just, I, in my head, I just imagine like her, this guy who's like, you know, that Johnny talks to first was the one that's like so super Stilson. And I, and, but there, yeah, you're right. It could have totally been, you know, sort of been like, let's get behind this guy. Yeah, she's you bringing know? her kid around. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, right. God. I mean, she's, we know that she's a very forward woman in a lot of ways. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't think well, it's unreasonable to imagine that it was it was her idea. Well, that just see that smile in service me. in service of that instead, like that big, like, okay. Yeah. Well, and it's like her kid too. At the end, like yeah. she's very apple damage. pie pretty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, then uh, that that now is my cemetery. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put that up there as, uh, <laughs> as Sarah as as a as, as a. a potential tea party member um which i guess not maybe i guess stilson would be a tea party person but um you know we he's definitely a good christian quote unquote yeah so. exactly <laughs> well a god-fearing you know, man a god-fearing man and well look it's it's easter sunday as we're recording this which seems fitting since we're talking about a messianic figure um and what do we usually have on easter we have some sweets and, and and I'm not really always just for the candy. Sometimes I like to have uh, the sweet cakes. And my favorite sweet cake <laughs> is pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. A belabored My belabored Sometimes segue. I like to have the sweet cakes, Rothman. <laughs> sweet cakes, Rothman. You know, I had to get to this seg somehow. You know, I almost cut this section out because we usually talk about this as, the, you know, the smutty, uh, no good, filthy king. And, I, and, I, and the only reason I really wanted to stress and keep it in is because the way that they say making bookcases... <laughs> seems like the roots of how we came up with this fucking section in the first place. Like the the reason why we come up with this is we haven't gotten to this book yet, but in 112263, uh Jake Epping uh and and Sadie Dunhill, they uh they call their sex pound cake. 
because they have they share the the, the wonderful uh, sugary cake pound cake and, and they say they it use. like a hundred times throughout and they the say books. it so many times and when they say making bookcases here it just made me think of like that cheeky like you know we had sex but aside from that i think this is you know on paper i think this is king's best sex scene and, and or most romantic scene in any of his works and i think the movie does really it's very adult it's very intimate it's very peaceful and i yeah i love this whole sequence so that's all i can say about it so I don't it's know, really yeah resigned and gorgeous yeah right yeah. Any, anything else we want to talk about with pound cake? No, no this isn't really a pound cakey one, and I uh, I think that's that's you know I think fitting. That's fine. It's yeah. It's uh, it's yeah. The love story is one of my favorites in the entire King canon. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've never I'm not a huge fan of most of his love stories. They're fine. They're usually just serviceable. Yeah. But this and eleven twenty two probably are the most like effective mm-hmm. uh, uh, love stories I think in the canon. Yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, but this one is probably easily my favorite. Well, you mentioned King Cannon, and King Cannon is part of a larger place that we like to call King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. That was a lot easier. Let's just say yeah, that, was that was a much a, easier I, seg. Sweet so cakes, we're going there. though, is pretty good. Sweet cakes is pretty good. I'm going to use it now for our <laughs> sorry, cakes. Rose Red Rothman. Sweet cakes coming in. Um, so look, this wasn't really an era where filmmakers were kind of growing up with Stephen King and putting in references and the Dark Tower and you know Christine in the background and you know Cujo. Um, but even so, there is a lot of connections. There's this is uh, you know this isn't the first time we saw Castle Rock because Cujo had already come out. But uh, we see Castle Rock, we got Bannerman. Um, you know, there was at the time, I believe there was ideas of kick- connecting the dots with Cujo in the dead zone. I'm glad they didn't. I think that would have kind of been a little distracting. Um, I-, I don't think that there's really anything else that's that's other larger connections. Although, Randall, you alluded to it with the reporter scene in the book. That's Richard Dees, who would eventually, you know, come back in the Night Flyer. Oh, fun. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So yeah. there's a, the connection there. So I'd like to imagine that um, maybe some way down, somewhere down the road, you know, they already did the also, Shout Factory release. But what if they <laughs> digitally put Miguel Ferrer in that scene? You know, just like I would this, love it. I love you know. Miguel Ferrer. But no, um, the uh, Wyzak is, you know, a name that King uses in a couple different books. Um, obviously, that's the char- name of the character he played in the Stan miniseries. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I love how much he loves certain names that they just resurface throughout. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, did I mention the gazebo? Cause that's like, a, I guess a thing that like they use yeah. again in, in, in it. So, um, well, my head's kind of killing me. So I think we should <laughs> stagger over a relaxed section and give our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah. We've been ready for an hour. <laughs> Okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. It's exactly what I called it. Final thoughts. <laughs> let's uh, let's you know give our final assessment. But you know, Gretchen, we we rank things with Pennywise clown noses. It's a very important rating system that we hear of on the radio. It's a five-year strong rating system of one to five bright red. Pennywise. And you can give half noses. And you can, can give, give half, half noses. noses. Okay. I don't yeah. usually do star ratings, but I will, I will abide by the house rules. Thank you so All much. All right. We'll it. kick it off. <laughs> All right. Uh, for me, this is, uh, I would say, a four Hong Kong movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very strong. It has a consistent tone. It's 
a gorgeous artistic vision. It's a great cast. I think that if it were a, a little bit longer and it sort of fleshed out each of its episodes more, I would be more inclined to give it four and a half or five. Um, but really ending a movie hungry for more is, is far from the worst thing that could happen, especially yeah. with the King adaptation. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Randall, what about you? Uh, I'm going to give it four bright red Pennywise clown noses. I think it's, um, I think it's a fully realized vision that all that isn't, that doesn't need to feel the need to be showy. I like, uh, I like the vibes of it all. I love the set. I love specifically, I think the, um, the production design. Um, mm-hmm. I think so much, I think like the Dodd house to me is such a great example of Cronenberg as a master of, of um, atmosphere and place and using all of those elements to contribute to characterization and to story. I feel like we, as much as I said, like, I would like to see more between Dodd and his mother. And I would, I think that one scene could do wonders, but it's like, we still learn so much about their relationship just from the clutter, the Mm -hmm. infantilization of his room, uh, the lighting in the house, all of it. I think it's um, it's just an incredibly strong directorial vision and the performances are wonderful. It's memorable. Like it's uh, I don't know. It's like, it's one of those things where just like all the elements are really kicking on all cylinders. Um, but I do feel like there, um, yeah, I just feel like there's perhaps more to, uh, flesh out. It does, you know, I think that at times it, it, I feel like there's, um, wisps of larger context and story that are in some ways sped through at times, but I do, I do love spending time there and I think it's great. So yeah, four noses for me. All right, Mel. What about you? Yeah, I'll round, I'll round this out with another four bright red Pennywise clown noses. Um, and I think my reason for docking a nose is, is just personal. Like it's just like, I don't know. Like maybe I wasn't maximally riveted at every second of this film. You know, like <laughs> right. which you know, it's no beef with with a lot of the choices there. Um, I think it accomplishes emotionally what it sets out to do. I love. I love Cronenberg's version of his presence here. Like, I, I think it's definitely a Cronenberg film. And, like, to, to say that it is not um, is sort of just being short-sighted on, like, what Cronenberg is. And um, I really just love how all the pieces fit together. The visions are just beautiful. Um, we didn't we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the one with the girl's room on fire. But that really oh, kind of yeah. kicks us off with... It, it almost looks like he's like on a theatrical stage with this girl, like their, their nearness and the nearness of that real fire. And, but also the weird surreal quality of it. Um, that, that, that balance between the surreal and the, the surreal image and like the real emotional depth is just so consistent throughout the film. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really loved it. And just for, I, yeah, I guess just for like unnameable resonance reasons, we're going with like a four out of five for me. That's fair. That's fair. Um, you know, I wouldn't say Dead Zone is Cronenberg's best film. I think that honor goes to the fly. Um, and, and always and forever. I mean, and look, no, no shade of Crimes of the Future, but I, the fly is always going to be. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. know. I could be five noser. You don't know. <laughs> you know, let, let's hope not. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to end up in an Aquaman situation here, but, uh, <laughs> 
Anyway, I, one of the things I think about, I, what I do love about the Dead Zone is I, I, I want to call it my favorite Cronenberg, and here's why. I'm a firm believer that we're really often at our best and we're paired with our equal. Um, now, I don't, I don't think this, I don't think this always works on paper, but when it does, as it does here, I, I think you get something really special. And I think by placing Cronenberg uh, in King's Dominion. I think he gets to work off a template that kind of ice some of his more eccentric tendencies. Um, and, and, and I mean eccentric tendencies because at the time, you know, we talked about how this was a graduation and I think that this certainly, uh, is, is a graduation for that reason. I think that some of his tendencies often got the best of him, especially when he gets into the second or third act of his films. I love video drum. I love the brood, but the second or third acts get a little rocky at times. Um, and I'm not saying that those those tendencies haven't also warranted some of his most iconic stuff. I mean, I fucking love Videodrome. I love it. Um, it's one of my favorite Midnight Masterpieces. But I think by limiting some of his flexes and kind of welding them to the King's Blueprint, at least in this story, you can't have dwarfs spawn from the psyche. You know, I <laughs> I think you get this like brilliant mix that kind of frames the strongest qualities of the two visionaries that we have here. Because I think it's because at least up until that point, this is one of King's most grounded works. And I think by being so grounded, I think Cronenberg's flair for exploring the sort of darker corners of her psyche gave it a little bit more depth. And I think that's the kind of depth that we can connect to. It's the depth that we can feel, we can meditate on with sobering emotion. And um, I can't say I feel the, way, the same way with any of Cronenberg's works um, prior to this, which is why I think this, you know, as I argued earlier, I think this really did set him up for the fly because he was able to kind of take that template that he kind of created here and just fucking cut our heads off and shatter our hearts, <laughs> which he does uh, with uh, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. I, I just think this is a diamond movie. I think the performances are stellar without ever really reaching for the stars. I think Cayman brings the gravitas without cracking the ceiling. I think the Rockwellian portraits are balmy and nostalgic. They're they're real, they're lived in. Um, and more importantly, as this, at least for this podcast, I think it actually feels like a King novel. I think I think Cronenberg captures the spirit and essence of the of the novel, but kind of what he talked about with Goldman, he made it his own. And um, I think out of all the works from this era, I, I just find this one keeps getting better and better with me. Like I I used to be, I mean, I remember seeing this in high school and being like, oh, that was good. Uh, let me check out this Michael. Yeah, that's how I felt too. I like it more as I get older. Right. Like, and I think a lot of it's because it's a very adult movie, and I it think is. that, and yeah. I think, and I think that's. You know, you could credit that to the whole themes of like the age and loss and what could have been yada, 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 all things that are going to really connect with us as we get older. But I think also when you think about it contextually and just where we are with filmmaking, you know, we talked about the Atlanta conundrum with with regards to movie making. And it's because really the only movies that we get so, so much nowadays are aimed at a certain demographic that, you know, kids and stuff that are going to keep spending, you know, money and tickets. And, you know, there's a whole marketing reasoning for it. Suits have taken over for Hollywood. This doesn't feel that way. This feels this feels like it was aimed squarely at adults going to watch an adult movie, and I think that's one of the reasons why, growing older, I'm just gonna like it a little bit more. Do you remember that Simpsons you know? bit where the kids are chanting Barton? Yes, Barton right. Simpsons. That's, that's yeah. what I did though. But I, but that's, I, know, I wish it was true. <laughs> I know, I do too. World. But you know, dead zone, dead zone, and that's what I think this movie is like that to me. So I, I, I say all this because I'm giving it five. I gotta give. I, I think this is. This Do is it. this is climbed up to the like second on my list of King flicks. I, I just think it's it moved up from third before. I, I just I fucking love this movie. Um, could potentially even be number one. Number one still stand by me for me. I just think that is just a diamond too. But I loved revisiting this. I loved 
doing all the research for this. And I really love this conversation. I, I Gretchen, you're such a blast to talk to. Um, oh, thank it's you so really much. my pleasure. Thank you for you having know. me. No, yeah, thank you for, for being on. Thank yeah. you for joining us. But, uh, you know, before we go though, uh, let's, you know, let's, let's do some plugs and catch everyone up on where we're going next. Uh, Gretchen, you've got a new book where should our listeners get it? Uh, and where can they find you and what are you up to next? So my preference is that you go to your local bookstore or, and, or, uh, requisition your library for a copy of Manhunt, my new novel. Um, but you can get it anywhere. Uh, you can walk into Barnes and Noble. You can order it from Amazon if you have to. My stated preference, local bookstore. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at scumbelievable. And uh, I actually just two nights ago finished my second novel, The Cuckoo. Holy oh, shit. Yeah. Oh That's God. awesome. Air horn noise. <laughs> um, the Cuckoo is about a small group of queer teenagers who in the mid 90s get sent by their parents to a conversion therapy camp deep in the Utah desert. And once they're there, they discover that something in the camp is creating compliant, well-behaved, straight copies of the campers. Oh, interesting. Oh, shit. That sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, when do you think that'll be out next year? Uh, hopefully next year. God, that's great. That's great. Uh, well, look for it. Uh, uh, we'll have David on next next year talking about it too. So that's awesome. Yeah, I would love to. Uh, Mel, what are you currently working on? Um, I'm working on lots of things. <laughs> Day job stuff, creative stuff. Uh, nothing really new to announce. You can always find me at, on Twitter at Mel Castle. Some of my writing is online. Um, you can find links to that at melcastle.com. Castle is spelled K-A-S-S-E-L. And I just love being on these episodes. Now that I'm back in Chicago, it's so much easier. Um, yeah. and I love being introduced to this movie for the first time. So strange. Um, but really, really glad for the opportunity to talk about it with you guys. Yeah, this is your second long watch, I think. Or you did because you did Shawshank. I did also, Shawshank. Which was, yeah, yeah, that was a that was also that was great, still, great fun. That's I think a good that, episode. I think, I think that might be the longest one we've still done, or no, maybe there's a shiny one. That was like a three and a half hour one. Where it's like, okay, enough. We we are You're in Shawshank. Uh, Randall, what are you working on now? And uh, where can our listeners? Uh, what can our listeners well, expect to find next from us? Well, coming up on the Losers Club, we've got Black House, the sequel to The Talisman, a uh, very strange, interesting, uh, divisive book co-written with Peter Straub. And that's our next book episode that'll be out in a couple of weeks, uh, early for our patrons. Uh, check us out on patreon.com slash the Barons. You get book episodes a week early and all kinds of other episodes, including our Dark Tower Detour series, which is coming back uh, this month with uh, sort of, you know, something to whet your appetite as you head into Black, uh, Black House. We're going to be talking about the talisman a little bit, sort of catching up on the Midworld connections there. And then also talking about some of the wildlife in Midworld. And uh, I'm sure the boys are going to have some fun with that. And then next month, we've got um, our for our Dance Macabre series, we're going to be doing Ghost Story by Peter Straub, uh, which should be fun. And then uh, Firestarter's out next month. So we're going to have some episodes on that. Lots of other fun stuff. So, yeah. Well, uh, I wanted to actually thank our constant listener, uh, Jonathan Gary. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, he sent me over a Dead Zone poster from Shot Factory. Um, it just kind of mentioned on on Slack, uh, not Slack, but Discord, basically saying, "Are you anyone a fan of this movie?" And I just jumped on it, and I just wanted to say, you know, I can't tell you how many times I looked up at the poster in the living room while I was doing research. So I just wanted to thank you. Uh, it's kept me great company, and I really appreciate the gift. 
Um, but uh, I think it's given me some powers because I'm, I'm, I'm having a vision, constant <laughs> listeners. I'm having a vision of you listening to this episode and giving us five bright red Pennywise clown noses. I'm also seeing you subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash the Barons. And I'm also seeing you return next week and next month and next year even listening to us with clear minds and full hearts over long days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 